Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Wajahat Ali is a New York Times contributing op-ed writer, a public speaker, and a self-described recovering attorney and tired dad. He also happens to be one of my favorite brains to pick on ongoing social issues and one of the more inspiring people in my phone book. He joined me on the pod for a long but incredibly interesting discussion about everything from his childhood and growing up in a Pakistani Muslim family, the importance of addressing our history and confronting its ugly parts in order to move forward racism, discrimination, parenting, how he made it through his daughter's cancer diagnosis, and what it was like to give a TED Talk right after he found out she was sick. We got started right off the bat talking about the state of journalism today and how we've all gotten to this point. I really hope you enjoy this conversation because I absolutely loved having it as evidenced by how long I kept him on the phone. I never, I never knew I'd be the, do this right for a living. They asked me to do Al Jazeera America. I had never done any like television or hosting. They're like, we think you'd be good. You want to try it out? And I was like building Ikea furniture for my wife. Uh, <laughs> totally broke. I just moved to like DC for like my wife. I'm like, all right. But I remember this was like a couple years ago. And it's like the old school versus new school. The old school is like, you have to wear a jacket. And they always told me I had to like sit up square with the square shoulders. And only then will America look at you and respect you. I'm like, yo, I don't think people care. I think people want honesty. They want authenticity. Yeah. They want intimacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember I was like hosting one time. I was guest hosting and there was a, uh, a guest. And I'm like, I remember I just said, hey, man, thanks for coming on. I said, hey, man. And they're like, that was too casual. Uh, and meanwhile, like, the people were like, that's great. And I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that's why like Stuart and like Trevor Noah and like, there's a reason why people gravitate towards them, like mm. the entertainment side, because 
they just don't trust the institutions anymore. And so someone, yeah. if someone can take the piss out of it, and I think kind of pierce mm-hmm. through and like kind of admit like the superficiality, they're, in a strange way, they're the ones who are seen as authentic. So now mm-hmm. people are like, Sophia's blunt. She doesn't have to do this for a living. She keeps it real. I'll go to Sophia instead of the great Saint Tucker Carlson. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Well, I'm yeah, glad you're doing actually, it. Well, thanks. It's, it's actually a really interesting observation. I, I'm a little crushed by it, and I guess I get it. I, I just, to me, Dan Rather is a superhero. Yeah, he's great. You know? He's such a classy, informed, principled man. And I think about Dan Rather journalism. And I I think, look, I, I think two things have happened in, in my sort of estimation or observation from the outside of it is that journalists have been able to, throughout history, expose such honest truth that it changes culture. And by the people who don't want to give up power, they're regarded as very dangerous. So they've worked very hard to campaign against journalism Always. on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we've taken away the the requirement of meeting a standard of decency, which used to quite literally be the law. And we've paved the way for people like Tucker Carlson right. to get on TV and say the most hateful things imaginable and and lie about people and and really denigrate any sort of ethics. Um, be overtly racist and misogynistic and, and antagonistic and, and, you know, employ a head writer who is a violent, misogynistic incel. And it's crazy to me that it's allowed. And that's why I think for any of us who, who has had the, I think about it as a privilege of exposure. Mm. You know, I had the privilege to go to journalism school. I've had the privilege to work as a storyteller and to work amidst a bunch of incredible unions for my entire career. You know, when I talk about healthcare and unions and and wage increases, people are like, what the fuck do you know? You're a celebrity. And I'm like, uh, y'all think we just hang out at the Golden Globes, but really we hang out on sets with like transpo drivers and construction dudes. Like that's our life. That's I only have crew. healthcare. That's my crew. Like I only have healthcare because I'm in a union, you guys. Um, and so... I, I always I always think of that as, as super interesting. And and those are the perspectives that that I realize I'm so lucky to have, that I know the experiences of all these different diverse kinds of people that I've been lucky enough to, you know, to be on presidential campaigns and 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 work on initiatives with the White House. Obviously not this one. Um but you yeah, know I was about to ask that. I'm like, interesting. Tell me that no, story, Sophie. No, def- no, no, I haven't <laughs> I haven't been to the White House since the end of 2016, I was like, it's been real, y'all. <laughs> Come back we'll in four see years. You in four years. Hopefully. Please. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. We'll have um, to wait. To, we'll have to wait till January 21st. Everyone talks about November. And uh, I always keep telling people January 21st. And everyone thought it was crazy. That's a really interesting thing. You know, you're mentioning this. A lot of, lot of journalists of color, we called all this that happened in 2015, right? I was, yeah. I was covering the campaign for Huffington Post at that time. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went to the DNC. And uh, I just did this tongue-in-cheek kind of uh, segment for the Huffington Post where I just went around and talked to people. And I said, will you visit me in the Muslim camps? Um, and people are like, what? This is never going to happen. And I'm like, can you bring me halal meat? 
And they're like, fine, I'll bring you halal meat. And I remember I talked to both Republican voters and Democratic voters. And people said to me, that'll never happen. He's just saying it to get elected. He's just being racist to get elected. And then we kept saying, yo, we have followed the careers of Stephen Miller, Jeff Sessions, Steve Bannon. The one compliment I always give this administration is that they're not subtle. They'll tell you exactly what they're going to do. But the rest of us who have, as you said, like kind of a some sort of like decorum or some semblance of like civility and decency. We're some like semblance of a moral core. Yeah, yeah. Some ethics, just like a smidgen <laughs> of it. Right. Uh, we're like that'll never happen. And you also see one of the other things I will say is the the talking about the distrust, right? And I've, I've lived through it. I'm in I'm in D.C. Virginia. You know, I've been in this game for a while. The kind of incestuous ecosystem between like big money, media, and politics. Mm-hmm. How it's just like a revolving door where people want business to go on as usual. So it's like, it's in their interest to kind of go along with this. So I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but Les Moonves, the, who's the CEO of CBS before he had to resign for yet another sexual harassment scandal, yeah. op- o- openly said, we might not like Donald Trump, but he is good for business. Like he openly said that. That's a quote. Yeah. And I remember the White House Correspondents' Dinner last year, the day before the dinner, uh, our agency held a big party in D.C., right? So you had all these hosts and reporters and journalists. And I went there. I hate these parties. I went for 10 minutes. My agent said, just show your face. I'm like, whatever. I, I, so I go in my jeans. Guess who's having the greatest time at that party? The greatest time. Sean Spicer. Ouch. So Sean Spicer, the first White House press secretary, whose job was to lie to the public, is invited to a party for reporters and journalists, and he is having the greatest time. He's drinking, he's giving people bear hugs. And right then I'm like, something is, I mean, I know I knew this, but you know, I need like a visual reminder that things are broken and this is not right. Yeah. I'm like, why is this man having the greatest time of his life cavorting with people that he called the enemy of the people and no one cared. And the weird thing to me is they always say, well, they don't really believe it. I'm friends with a guy. He's a comedian who I respect who two years ago, we were working on a, on a big voting thing together. And, and he says to me, you know, I did this thing with Tommy Lahren and she's not evil like she is on TV. She knows she's playing a character. She doesn't believe half the shit she says. She's much nicer, but you know, she's got to do the job she's got to do because she works on Fox. And I just thought, what are you talking about? How how is that your defense of someone that that they're more racist and cruel on TV because it sells than than what they actually believe in their real life that, that someone is willing to do that isn't that worse Yeah, I think that's worse that, that you're willing to incite hatred that you're that you're willing to just be so brazenly mean to people and lie about people I I couldn't fathom it. And, and I, I had that moment when I, when I think of the, the sort of pictures of, oh, things are really wrong here. I remember when Sean Spicer walked out on that, whatever, the dance show, one of the dance shows. Oh, he danced with the stars, stars where he got, got $250,000. Couldn't believe it. Yeah. And I'm like, look at this guy in this like lime green popsicle shirt. What is happening? How is this allowed? How are we rewarding folks who do this? You know, I, I think about that that woman, whatever her name is, Kaylee, what is it, McEnany? Ka- Ka- uh, Kaylee McEnany, who McEnany. also on the deal. I call, I call also her McEnany. McEnany's yeah. fine. I love that. 
You know, the Super fact that it. she got up and said the science should not stand in the way of kids going back to school. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's exactly what science is for, to keep you alive. Do you know many people with polio? No, because of science. But you know, everyone, so everyone says the Kylie example is a good one because I was on... I wish you guys. I let's we'll make this podcast juicy. Let's let's spill some tea and coffee. Uh, I love uh, you know, it. I I was on we'll CNN. We'll go forwards with, before we go back, yeah. like we usually do. We just got in it, and I like it. No, it'll be fun. Uh, so I was on CNN with her once, and before we started, you know, we just do the gab like this was, uh, and she was very pleasant, very nice, and I knew. I said, "Hey, a friend of yours who grew up with you." from Florida, Rihanna says, hi. And Rihanna says, oh yeah, I grew up with them. She's Muslim and, and Kylie's not Muslim. And she said, yeah, I remember we lived close by and her, like, you know, her family was really nice. And so she was very civil and she goes, I remember her. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. As soon as the camera turns on, boom, she goes in attack mode. And of you? I, well, I mean, just, she does her role. She does her role, ah. right? Trump supporter. And I could tell you now, because I was at CNN for a year officially, and you know, I've been on cable news, in the green room, I've only met two people who come on TV to support Trump who are actually true believers. One of them was Paris Denard, who, again, if you see a recurring theme, uh, was fired because of sexual harassment uh, mm-hmm. allegations. And there was one more. If you remember that guy, Jeffrey Lord, in the initial... Uh, yeah, so go back. For those of you guys who remember Jeffrey Lord, he was a guy, really elderly guy, always smiled and like was the first Trump supporter. He was on CNN all the time and his mom lived like, like in the basement and uh, he, he finally got fired, right? Everyone, nearly everyone else says to me, I hate this guy. I can't stand him. It's, wow. d- it's disgusts me that I have to go and support him. And I'm like, well, you don't have to. And then I've seen some of them who were, you know, like they're conservative, they're in the ecosystem and they, they weren't vociferous in their praise of Trump. You could see there was disgust over the past four years. They've gone, they've gone all in because Trump is the future. Trumpism is the future. And so you sit there and I go, I would never get on TV or on a podcast or in the New York Times, wherever I write and commit myself to words if I did not believe in them. It's not no. worth it. I'd make my money somewhere else. But see, that's what's interesting to me in a conversation with you because- since you and I became friends, which happened in the, you know, the cool thing about being millennials is you can become friends with people in a digital space. We, we got, I don't even know how it happened. I mean, it's been so many years now that we chat about politics and life and, and you send me great articles and I send you obviously great playlists and other things happening. In, in Excellent the world. playlists. Excellent Thank you. Playlists. And, 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 you know, we, we are pursuing the right side of history. I hope so. I forget that there are people who are willing to lie to the to to, the true detriment of other people for access to power. I could not do that. I, you know, I've done the thing where as an actor, I I know what's coming on a show and I have Mm. to go do press about it. And it's like, it's a big twist at the end of the episode. So obviously I have to lie and be like, yeah, well, you know, I can't give it away. It's like, then I ruin it for the viewer. I feel guilty about that. (laughs) And that's like, actually my job is to protect the surprise at the end of the TV episode or the movie. I can't fathom getting up and... And just lying to people. I can't fathom saying in a green room, 
this guy's going to destroy America. This guy's a fascist. And and then going on TV and saying, there's been, never been a president who loves America more. I don't understand. I don't understand it. Well, it's because it's the, it is what I call the right-wing ecosystem, right? And so a lot of people just say, oh, it's the media. And I think they have to just step back. Because I studied this. I'm calling it the media. It drives me well, crazy. It's, you know, you have to step back and uh, just examine what's happening, right? It's not just Fox News. So it's Fox News. It's, it's radio personalities. It's the internet. Mm-hmm. It's think tanks. It's funders, like the Koch brothers, among others. It's politicians. You can literally trace talking points from think tank reports that come from DC that then become mainstream talking points, right? And so this is what we're up against. And whenever people like us are trying to warn, they say, oh, you're either being too hysterical or you're being too partisan. I want to be fair. Look, I went to an all boys Jesuit Catholic high school, right? Where I was a token Muslim, token Brown guy. My friends, I've had friends of all different religions and ethnicities. And when I say we have to be aware of what we're up against, it's not all Republicans, it's not all conservatives, but there is an ecosystem right in front of us right now. Mm -hmm. And we've just teased it out, right? Donald Trump, people who know better, who get up and are now normalizing locking up kids in cages, normalizing the fact that Donald Trump, I don't know if you guys remember this, but apparently Putin is putting bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers. No one talks about it. Uh, This dude dude was impeached for trying to uh, 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 strong arm an ally Ukraine into interfering in the U.S. elections. People have died to protect our elections, the bedrock of our democracy. And so when people say, and, and I'm just going off your thread here, Oh, they're not really like that. Oh, they're nice to their kids. Oh, they held the door open for that old lady. Uh, Oh, they don't really believe it. I'm not God. I don't know what's in people's hearts. I don't know what's your intentions, but I can judge you by your actions and your behavior. And if you are voluntarily acting and behaving in a way which normalizes such chaos and cruelty, then are you not complicit? Yes, I believe you are. I do too. I do too. And also this refusal, and it goes back to the earlier point, and I think the racial divide here is important. Why so many of people of color in particular, not exclusively saw this coming is because we have experienced America uh, mm. in a different way from so many of our um, you know, white citizens. We have experienced the breath of America. And mm. America to us has never been sometimes that welcoming. You know, Merit was never enough. So we see the good, the bad, and the ugly. So when we saw Trump and we heard Trump, we we're like, yo, everybody, This is what's coming down the pipeline. And I cannot tell you how many times from funders, from men and women who know better, from men and women who are good people who care, even in in the media, I could tell you going back six months on set, a host during the break said, you know, I really don't think Trump is racist. I think he's just acting that way. Uh The refusal to acknowledge or confront the R word which I think is like the Voldemort in America. Because if you, mm. if you confront it and you acknowledge it, then you have to tackle it. You have to be like, how am I complicit in white supremacy? How am mm. I complicit in this system? How mm. am I enabling it? All of us, myself included. Like, what, what have mm. I, where have I failed in my responsibility? Like you said, like if we're, if we're Spider-Man, to quote Uncle Ben, uh, who quotes <laughs> Voltaire, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Like, yes. where did I mess up? Like, as a, as, a, as a man who has a platform to write for the New York Times or was on CNN or is friends with people like Sophia or has been in, like, you know, who gets to interview politicians. So I just feel like you and me, I feel at least 
are aware of that burden or that weight and are trying mm. to wrestle with it. And then I see people who just don't give an F as society crumbles and they, they just normalize it. Helen, what's interesting about what you're saying, <clears throat> what strikes me as a sort of aha moment is we all love the ideals of America, but we are afraid, it seems, as a society to confront our own shortcomings that might stand in the way of those ideals because we take it as some intense judgment or, or personal failure. Whereas I think about medicine, any tech, any innovation, any, any world-changing invention, people have to go, okay, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And I'm gonna, well, shit, that didn't work. Okay, go back three steps. Let's figure out what we did that was broken. Let's, let's make it better. Okay, and then we're going to go forward from here. Oh my God, cool. Look, it worked. We, we made the vaccine that saved all the kids. We, we, we made an iPhone. Like, wow, we invented something that didn't exist before. How amazing. I love amazing. how you went from vaccine to iPhone. That was very But brilliant. you know what I mean? Like, like the polio vaccine yeah. changed the world. The right. iPhone changed the world. Right. We went from having flip phones to having computers in our pockets. And, and so what's interesting to me about what you're saying about our refusal to acknowledge racism, or let's talk about another R word that men really don't like to talk about is rape culture. Oh. If I if I have one more dude up in my mentions or DMs being like, you fucking bitch, there's no such thing as rape culture. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you're gonna tell you're gonna tell me about it. You should you um, should send him the latest uh breaking news about what happened on Fox News. Hello. Started to yeah. see that this morning. That is wild. And you know how I saw it? I woke up when I finally determined that I wasn't gonna have a normal sleep cycle today. I got up to I got up to videos from my dad. He was recording with his iPhone the TV screen at my parents' house, sending me videos going, I can't believe these people. How are they allowed to have jobs? Criminals, all of them. My dad sends me political memes all the time. It's like he's That's so great. he's just so cute. And, you know, my dad's an immigrant. My dad loves America. And he's just like, these Trump people are they're all traitors. Where'd your dad come from? Uh, Canada. My dad grew up in Montreal. Um, and spent every summer like in this really tiny town up on the St. Lawrence River on a farm. And my dad came to the U.S. in the 70s uh, to go to Art Center and mm. then got a green card. And then when I was 12, finally became a citizen. Oh. So I really love, I love when people are like, well, they have to come the right way. I'm like, you know how many years that takes? And a lot of these people are in process of doing the right thing. It just, it can take 20 to 40 years sometimes. It's like Ted Cruz. People mm. forget he was born in Canada. And then, and then please mm. tell me he did chain migration like Melania Trump and brought his relatives from Canada. Ted your, Cruz? No, your dad? father. Your father. <laughs> no, my dad, um, my dad came here for college because his older sister, Judy, had, had come for college also. And my dad went to visit her. Uh, on her campus in Arizona and was like, this is cool. <laughs> so it's interesting. My, fa my father came as a result of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which, which finally removed the restrictive quotas that were put in place in this country in the 1920s because in the 1920s, the original invaders were seen as, wait for it, Eastern European Jews and Italians and Irish mm -hmm. Catholics. And mm -hmm. this was like a draconian measure 
Uh, and and just like we said, it was like the right wing ecosystem of that time that worked in tandem for decades to dehumanize and marginalize the bad immigrants who at that time were these Eastern Europeans and they want to just shut everything down. It's it's a remake. So my family on my mom's side were exactly those people. My grandmother, Ah. my great grandmother and my great grandfather came to America and by the way, we love the story now, right? But at the time, we forget that they were being treated this way. Uh, we love to talk about the people who came here through Ellis Island and yeah. made America, you know, this incredible place for progress. That was my family coming from Italy. Uh, and the and that's so that's on my mom's side. And wow, I mean, the the oppression and discrimination that they faced as Italian immigrants was was not to be underestimated. No, and not it's at interesting, all. I guess, because for me, having a family who on both sides came here for the the ideals of America and on my mother's side who was so heavily discriminated against and seeing what that experience was like for them, seeing that my grandmother when my mom was born, forbade her mother and father, so my great-grandparents, from speaking Italian to my mom. Mm. She'd had it. And she said, you know, when my mom was five, she made a rule. She said, stop it. We have to assimilate. They have. I want them to stop calling us names. Yeah. And Just so, for survival. For survival. And so for survival in a moment, my mother lost her home country's language. And I think about all of the people who that's happened to. I think about these guys in these MAGA hats who are, you know, yelling at folks speaking Spanish in line to get a salad in New York. Uh, we've all seen the videos. I, I think about, um, and, and obviously this, this has a far deeper, uglier root and ramification, but I think about the reality of when we look at something like the 1619 Project and we understand the the slave trade happening in its inception, how Africans who were enslaved were brought here, separated from their language, from their families, stripped of their names and stripped of their language. And, and so they, they, there was a very intentional and cruel systemic choice to deculture people. And and that from hundreds of years ago morphed into a if you speak another language, if you look another way, then you can't really be from here. We'll never really let you in. And and what's what what bothers me about parts of the way we see it now is to your point, in just a hundred years, now some of these people who scream at folks who are speaking Spanish or Chinese or Arabic think it's chic when they overhear people speaking French or Italian or Swedish, whereas those were people who we were discriminating against 100 years ago. And whenever I see racists going after people for their language on Twitter, I'm like, you know how jealous I am that I'm not bilingual? <laughs> like, I took French for six fucking years. I wish I could. <laughs> like, what are we talking about? And, and, and I'm just like, what's wrong? What is wrong with us? How have we as a people not figured out that all of the, all of the quote unquote ammunition we use to discriminate against each other is just an illusion? You know, we, you know, it's, 
it's it's based on what we were saying. It's it's part of that American dream, that American narrative, right? Like the immigrant comes through Ellis Island and mm-hmm. they pulled themselves up from the bootstrap and there were strangers and aliens and they came to this country and they were accepted and they built themselves up. And now look, they've mm-hmm. created this beautiful mosaic that is America. But, you know, that, that metaphor that says the streets are paved with gold in America usually glosses out or whitewashes the blood. The streets are also yeah. pl- paved with blood. And the the narrative that you said, the macro narrative of America, which is so important for us to believe in, is that narrative of the immigrant. We came here and we built ourselves up. But what they forget is not all the immigrants were assimilated. Not yeah. all people who came were able to be integrated. Uh, they were not absorbed into whiteness. So... Yes, the Italians and the Irish and the Catholics were able to be absorbed into the the whiteness project. But you mentioned 1619, and it it goes back to that macro level of what Mm -hmm. we were talking about, where I feel like once America confronts the reality, the reality does not sustain the illusion. Whereas Mm. I was taught, you've heard some like right-wing people say this, that's why there's the attack on 1619. I think it's a really good example of, of this vociferous reactionary attack. How can America be the land of the free democracy which we mm-hmm. which we have loved and projected to the world and then you're telling me that there was a 1619 project and this country you know used and abused black people and we've built this country on the backs uh, of black slaves and we have then totally dehuman- dehumanized them and but look lincoln came and freed them and then now people are like yeah but there was also uh, segregation and jim crow laws and mississippi laws and yeah. and and, and, you know, lynching, and that's why we're talking about reparations. They're like, of course not. No, merit. Merit, ladies and gentlemen, just like my Italian grandfather and my Jewish grandfather, you need merit. And so you cannot divorce the American narrative from white supremacy and racism. And I think on a macro level, the 1619 Project, the attacks on the 1619 Project are this necessary I think, need for some Mm -hmm. on, I think, the right to maintain this fiction of America, to maintain Mm -hmm. the politics that they espouse. And then the... Sorry, no, the last thing is the personal of it. The personal of it is white fragility, right? Like the attack on me. How dare you say I'm a racist? It's okay to support racism in this country. It's okay to support racist policies. But God forbid, Sophia, if you call them out on their racism, my God, they melt down. And I was just mm-hmm. trying to connect the dots of what you were saying. I think that's what we're witnessing in 2020. Like this, mm. we're confronted with our demons, the warts, the ugliness, the nuanced, messy realities of America. Mm. Some people are within and saying, okay, what's my responsibility? What are the policies that broke down? break down? How can I like make it better? And other people are saying, you are literally telling me that the fundamental American project is a lie and I refuse to believe it. I think that that's so insane because it's impossible not to acknowledge human failing throughout history, which has been parallel pathed with human progress. Right. And to me, it feels like if we deny where we have failed, we also in a way deny how far we've come. If we deny the 1619 Project, we we deny the steps we've made to right those horrific wrongs. We haven't gotten there, but we've made steps. If we deny that once upon a time, women 
couldn't get a friggin' checking account or a credit card unless their husband signed for it. If we mm. deny that when Gloria Steinem moved to New York City, she couldn't rent an apartment because she was a single woman and all the building managers thought, well, if you're a single woman and you can afford an apartment in New York City, you must be a hooker. And she was like, I'm a journalist. Like, that was real. Yeah. That's where we come from. You know, even even when we think about the things we love about, you know, the fantasy of, of you know, where we want to go in life. You know, you talk about your family, like getting married, finding your person, like your dad, you know, for women, my dad's going to walk me down the aisle. It's like, yeah, because that comes from an era where fathers literally gave away their daughters in exchange for cattle. Hello? <laughs> I don't understand why it hurts us to acknowledge the truth of where we've come from so that we might learn from it and continue pressing forward. If we want America to be the America of our ideals, to be the land of the free, we better look long and hard at who is not free and why so that we can fix it. If we look around and we see that when the Declaration of Independence, you know, was signed— and we look at those renderings, it was all a bunch of dudes around the table and they were all white, but we better build a bigger fucking table fast. I don't understand why it's a bad thing to want to have a larger proverbial feast with all, with all people, with all of our neighbors. It's such a strange thing. And I, and I realize that the, the scarcity mentality that has always been a weapon of control has permeated into so many arenas of our lives that so many people don't realize they have, be it a conscious or unconscious fear, that if, oh, if my neighbor gets more, am I going to have less? Yeah. And that's not how it has to be in the richest country in the world. You know, it, it would actually cost us less to, to have more ethical policies that protected more people you know, in the long run, the country would just get richer. This is basic math. And it's it's a really interesting thing that that people don't want to confront failure because it's only when you confront failure that you can better innovate for the future. And I I don't know. I, I, I don't see when I've traveled to Germany, I don't see German people who are like, you know what I wish we had less of? I wish we had less memorials to the Holocaust. I just wish I didn't have to think about this. It's so ingrained in culture of something happened here and we weren't alive when it happened, but it was so awful. We can never let people forget it because we don't want it to happen again. Mm. What is wrong with that? Well, no, see, I wish more people were like, you know, I think slowly but surely, hopefully this generation will get there. But, you know, the problem is by airing this, by confronting the warts, the ugliness, the sins, the desire, predominantly of people of color, is not to shame. It's not to get special status. It's to get equal status. It's not to have special standards. It's to have equal standards. Yeah. But to others, it is a fundamental attack on them, their values, their identity, their history. Mm. So for you, it's like, using your science analogy, we messed up, we tried, we're trying, trying, we're in a path towards progress. If you look at all the data and studies that have come out in the past four years revealing the primary, not exclusive, but the primary motivator of 
Trump voters, it's not economic anxiety, like we said, it is racial anxiety. When yeah. they when they really drill down on that, what does that mean? We can't recognize this country anymore. We feel we are being, wait for it, replaced. We want things to go back to where it was normal, the status quo. And when you ask them, when, when were things normal? 1950s. Uh, if you ever watch TV in the 1950s, black and white, leave it to Beaver. No one like me even existed, right? And so... Mm-hmm. To them, and use, let's use the dinner table analogy because I always use that. For people of color, for those who are listening, right? I just want to, the way we feel it, right? Suppose there's a table of wizards. You, you peel back the curtain and you finally see the wizards who operate everything. It's 10 white dudes. Let's say eight white dudes, two white women. You go, okay, I'm the darkest thing in the room. You fast forward five years. You peel back the curtain. It's 10 people. Now it's eight white people and two people of color. For the two people of color, this is what we're thinking oh my God, we finally made it to the table. This is great. And look, we brought some enchiladas and biryani. We brought that to the buffet table. Now, thinking about the mindset of racial anxiety, for the other eight, some of them said, oh my God, those two brown people or those two black people, they took away my friend's seats. They took away my people's seats. I am being replaced. And the reason why I'm spending time on this and making it into a simplistic analogy is because that is the core of the racial anxiety that is motivating much of the friction that we're witnessing in 2020 America. Mm. The attacks on immigrants, the attacks on Muslims, the attacks on the mm. 1619 Project, the attacks on Black Lives Matter, the attacks on Me Too. Let's keep everything status quo where we were in power and everything was okay. What? We have to treat women with respect now. What? We have to challenge rape culture. What? We can't harass people anymore. What? Mm. People are just being too, wait for it, politically correct. You're canceling me. And the rest of us are saying, we're not trying to cancel anyone. We're trying to cancel toxic behavior, injustice, and inequality. So if you really are committed to progress and these American values, let us challenge you to live up to those ideals. And this, my friends, is going to be the major tension moving forward, even after Trump loses. And this is my prediction, and I get in trouble for this, and I hope I'm wrong, is that what people don't realize is they go, oh, Trump will lose and everything will go back to normal. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, these demons have been unleashed. They will get further radical. Some will get armed. You're not paying attention. The number one domestic threat in America is white supremacist terrorists. The stuff that was fringe four years ago is now mainstream. You're seeing people who are running for office. You're going to get elected. People who believe in the Q conspiracy. You see this toxic anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theory, which, now a main, which is now a mainstream talking point about George Soros and the Jews that are funding the immigrants. It's so insane. That is mainstream, Sophia. Yeah. And so this is why we need the people of goodwill to stand up. And it's a tension, right, for me, because I'm actually a nice guy, believe it or not. Uh, you and I talk, but I, at the same time, like, what's my role? Because I've gotten in trouble in my career, as you know, for reaching out across the aisle. And people say, Mm -hmm. you're normalizing. And I say, there has to be Mm -hmm. a balance where I can see the humanity of people who don't see me as human. I have to be Mm -hmm. welcoming, even though I'm not welcomed. And maybe I can Mm -hmm. convince them, win them over. And I've, I've seen that in my life. I've won them over. But there are other folks where I go, if I don't confront it, if I don't slap this down, if I don't take out Thanos, it grows. And where's yeah. that balance? Yeah, I feel that too. And and I, I don't know if you feel this way. I imagine you do because you're a, a brown man in America. And I feel this way because I'm a woman in America. Different reasons, but same terror, I'd imagine, on some level. 
um, maybe not same, maybe like cousins of fear. <laughs> um, sometimes I get afraid, how far am I going to go to confront this? How far mm. am I going to go to unpack why this insanity is a lie, a flat out lie? How big of a target do I want to put on my back? How many, how many more death threats a week do I want to get? Because mm. I'd really like to not get any. I, I would like for my desire to see America achieve the best of her ideals to not be met with, I'm going to fucking kill you, you bitch. <laughs> I would really love for that to not be the reaction. Um, as, I'm, as I'm sure you would love to not be getting the kinds of emails that you, know, you posted just yesterday. And I, I try to figure out where my place in, in maybe going a little bit across the aisle to have conversations that feel like they might restore some sanity. Where, where is my place there, you know? Yeah. The day that we're recording this episode uh, happens to be a Tuesday, which is, you know, when we release ours for, for work in progress. And uh, our guest today, as you and I are speaking, is Steve Schmidt. And Steve is like, you know, he, he was the apple of the Republican Party's eye for yeah, 20, that's right. six years. And this is what I've warned some folks. And you have to give people, you're a storyteller, we're storytellers, right? There has to be a redemption arc yeah. for most human beings. If people feel that all their options are closed, if people feel that no matter what they do in the future for this reckoning, for atonement, will not lead to some salvation, mm -hmm. basically what happens is they say, all right, let me just put a born to lose tattoo on my head. It's over. And let me then double down on this toxic path. And I'll give you one quick example, which is an extreme example. I'm doing it on purpose. Is I've talked to and befriended former Nazis and KKK members uh, and former extremists, right? They call themselves formers who took part in hate, uh, who promoted it. Uh, but then later on, they grew up and they realized not just the error of their ways, but they realized how self-destructive it was. Mm -hmm. And they have, through their experience, become messengers to give off-ramps to those people they see on the path. You mm -hmm. have to give humanity an off-ramp to get to a better path. And so the balance for us is, okay, it's like, all right, let me go biblical for a second, just for fun. Uh, it's like the Pharaoh. I feel like, cause I feel like we're living in biblical times and Donald Trump is like, he's like an incompetent Pharaoh, right? Uh, cause he's the Pharaoh was competent. Like this is an incompetent vulgarian Pharaoh, but like, there's a story it's in the Quran, but also a thing in the, in the old Testament, right? Where there are people who are like, Oh, you know, Moses, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't know, but then I saw you and I, I'm, I'm going to join you now. It's the better path. But then there were people who were with the Pharaoh up until the end. And they only decided to say, oh, yo, wait, wait, wait. I'm with you, Moses, as the Red Sea was collapsing, right? <laughs> right. And, then, and, and if, you, if you look at the if theology behind it, God's like, yeah, I don't accept that. Um, you know, too late. So there has to be a balance there, I think, where people like you and me who get subjected to all this hate, people have no idea. I'm glad you mentioned that. And, I, and it just yesterday was one of the few times I shared it with the tongue-in-cheek humor. And you see me, I have a different style. Um, mm. A lot of people expect brown people and black people to be like Daffy Duck, to like sit there and get angry. I try to be like Bugs Bunny. I always want the carrot at the end and I want Yosemite Sam to fall in the hole that he's created for me. And I think I did that yeah. yesterday. Uh, but that's just a snapshot. People have no idea the stuff that you get as a woman and that I get uh, as a Muslim man and a brown person, the death threats. My parents who are immigrants who've been in this country for like over 40, 50 years. My mom, I'm sure your mom and dad do the same thing. They WhatsApp me like, beta, son, 
don't piss off these Ben Shapiro people. It's not worth it. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, my mom and dad always go, but you're doing good work. Go for yeah. it. But Berta, be careful. And so I got kids and I got a death threat yesterday, another one, going after my family. And for a brief yeah. moment, for like two minutes, I thought to myself, what happens if someone comes and attacks my kids in my home yeah. uh, for my activism, for my opinions? Is it worth it? What would I, you know, how would I be able to reconcile that guilt? But at the same time, I feel like, you know, and then this is not where I ended. I don't know where you end up with. I said, you know, I'm no martyr. I have no desire to be a martyr. Uh, I'm just a simple person. But I feel it is very important for me at the end of the day, whenever my life does end, that I know that I stood up for something. And I see where history is taking this country if we don't stand up. I'm a student of history. I've connected the dots. I've called this out. I've been right the last five years. And if I don't stand up now, our children's generation is going to inherit this mess. And my children will say, Baba, how come you didn't fight? So that's what keeps me in it. I I feel that as well. I I feel like, how dare I have the privilege of a platform and waste it? And I don't want to be a martyr either. But I don't think I could sleep at night if I wasn't doing every single thing that I can to encourage us to be better to each other and to encourage us to see through the nonsense, you know, to your point, my, yeah, my mom will go, are you, are you being careful? (laughs) Yes, mom. Um, and I know it's scary for them. You know, I, I know that there are times where they would feel safer if I were less outspoken, but they also say, you know, you are, you are beyond our wildest dreams. We could not be more proud of you because right. you don't have to do this. And it's, it's tiny things like that. God, even just telling you that my parents said that to me recently, like gave me a moment of, it was like a, a little bit of calm washed over me, you know, cause it's, it's a tense time, but I, I want to do right by them. I want to do right by the generations coming after us. And and I do think, and, and I wonder if you feel this way, because you talked about, you know, your parents coming here and, and the laws changing that allowed for that. Do you feel, and I, and I do want to get into their story also, do, do you feel almost, I don't know if it's a requirement or an obligation, because those things can feel sort of negative. I, I almost feel a responsibility, like a, like a pride to push America to be amazing because my family came here for it. You know, so many families have come here for, for what this place represents. And, and we better, we better hold her accountable. We better, you know, Baldwin said it. I love this country more than any place on earth. And and thus I hold the right. I'm butchering his quote. I'm not doing no, it exactly it, right. But, but, you know, he says, he says, and thus I hold the right to, you know, criticize her perpetually. It, it's a, it's such a love, you know, a, an asking for, for a leveling up and a, and an always expanding to me anyway, you know, and, and I wonder if you feel that because, because your parents immigrated here, they they came. They did they come straight to California from no, Pakistan, you know, or it, it's it's my father and his older brother at the time were very young students, and oh. we, we we and it always goes back to like oh merit, pull yourself up. But oftentimes people don't uh, factor in luck 
in serendipity. You know, my parents, mm-hmm. my father was at right age as a young student when the 1965 Immigration Nationality Act passed, right? He got really lucky that my grandfather pre-partitioned in India, you know, and then they moved to Pakistan, you know, made that little bit of money, saved it to invest in their education. Uh, I've mm-hmm. gone back to Pakistan several times and I sit there and I think about it and this goes back to your question about that, that privilege and the luck and, and, and being aware of it. I'm not any different than any of those kids I see sometimes in the Karachi streets and the Karachi slums. The mm-hmm. only difference is that I happen to be born to my father and mother who got very lucky that thanks to the 1965 Immigration Act and the fact that they were educated, were able to come here. That's it. Mm-hmm. See that? Mm-hmm. My dad got here with his brother. They built themselves up. They did multiple jobs, them and their friends. Then, you know, he was in the Midwest and uh, he was really bright and he was like a TA and then he was also like an assistant professor. And then it's like, like you got to get married. You're getting really old. You're 30. It's over. <laughs> it's ancient. What are you doing? You know, in South Asian culture, it's like you're a mummy if you're 30. I mean, get, get, get out. And so back in the day. And so then he saw a photo of my mom in this paper in America. And apparently it was like one of those papers that comes from Pakistan. And in my classic old school dad Spartan way, instead of saying she's really pretty, she goes, I found her intriguing. And so he, uh, he (laughs) asked his father, he says, who is this girl? My grandfather at the time read it. She goes, Oh, Hashmi. She can't be Hashmi. I knew a Hashmi in Pakistan. Maybe that's her. That's his daughter. And so my mom like won some award, right? Because my mom was super bright like my father. And that's why she was in the paper. And mm-hmm. so I think my dad had made up his mind that he was going to marry her. They go to Pakistan where they meet. And I don't know if you ever, if, I don't know if you guys have seen like Indian, uh, uh, what's it called? Indian marriage. Like it's on Netflix right now. I just saw it. I just binged through it. Oh my God. No, I just saw the preview last night. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's wild. It's Indian matrimony or something. It was, so it was kind of like that. It was old school. It was arranged marriage. My dad with his parents goes to meet my mom's family and they bring out my mom then. Right. And my mom sits there and my dad sits there and my mom's kind of, this is what my mom says. So you came to talk, talk. Uh, and my, and, and my mom's <laughs> mom, my nanny, my, my grandmother, like kicked her under the table and said, mm. and she goes, what, what? And so my father smirked <laughs> and turned to, turned to her father and says, oh, she, uh, she's a, she's blunt. Uh, and I think my, that's my father's way of saying he was smitten. So like literally 11 days later, they got married. Uh, wow. boom. And then my mom came here. And then I was born in 1980. I'm the only child. For anyone who knows anything about Asian cultures, we're a breeding people. So the fact that I'm an only child is very rare. And I'm also left-handed, which is very rare in Asian and South Asian cultures. Because, Sophia, the left hand is only used for one thing. You want to guess? I don't know if I do. Bathroom. No. Swear to God. So they tried to convert me. They tried to, that, that you see, talked to a lot of South Asian and Asian kids and asked them, Whoa. were you originally left-handed? A lot of kids get converted. So I was, I, they tried to like, what they did was they held my left hand behind my back and they threw tennis balls at me thinking I would catch it with my right hands. But I was like a fat kid. So the balls just bounced <laughs> off my stomach. And, and then uh, this is a true story. I'm not making this up. And then finally How they're like, How old were you? I was like five. Oh, and, they, no. and, and they finally gave up and they finally gave up. I remember my, my Wasif, Wasif Chacha, my father's brother was studying to be a doctor. He saw this, this, this spectacle of, of human torture and he's like, let it go. He is left-handed. Let it go. And they're like, fine. Uh, oh, no. But you know, you, you, you feel like, you feel like, you feel like there's disappointments, right? Cause I, I'm, I was, I'm left. No, I'm not disappointed. My parents love me, but you know, as the only child, 
of immigrants, right? There's no like number two or number three. And so- Me neither, by the way. I'm you know, also- Oh, we're only children? Oh, yes. Yeah, is so also not common for a bunch of Italian Catholic people. Yeah, no, we're breeding folks. And, and so yep. I think the weight of just being an only child, is just forget the immigrant part, is I am my, ch- my parents' only seed. So mm. I'm carrying on the legacy, whatever that means. Then you add on the immigrant factor. My parents worked so hard to build this community, to build these traditions that we've, you know, continued, where it was so hard for them, where they were mocked and ridiculed for their accent, where they were mocked and ridiculed for their, their, their color, where they didn't have a chance to pursue their, their dream of being a storyteller. I, I've talked to uncles now in their 50s and 60s. I'm like, did you want to be an engineer? And they're like, of course not. I wanted to be an architect. But I only had two choices. I could either go engineering, doctor, or business because that would give me stability yeah. and that's the money I needed to send back home. And so in our, the last thing I'll say is in our culture and particularly like the immigrant culture, and we joke about this, there's the holy trinity of occupations. Doctor's number one. Number two is an engineer. And number three is dubious lawyer? businessman. Oh, no, no, lawyer's new. Oh, dubious okay. businessman who somehow makes a lot of money. Uh, and then fourth, lawyer. And so when you go become writers, like you're a failure, right? And so for me, it's always like, even though my parents have always encouraged me, I went on this non-traditional path. I better succeed. And not only, not only for my parents' generation, but the reason why I do it is there's so many South Asian kids mm. who so desperately do not want to be doctors or engineers or lawyers who want to be storytellers. Mm. And what I've seen in my career and my path in the past 15 years is they literally have told me, yo, I brought my parents to your play and I, sh- I showed them, look, a brown guy did it and white people respected him. Yo, look, that's a brown Muslim guy being bold on CNN and my mm-hmm. parents respect that. Yo, look, Mujad Ali is like authentically brown and Muslim and he's in the New York Times and, and the whites like him. You know, maybe I can do it. And so I've heard mm-hmm. parents say, and this is the last thing I'll say, and thank you for letting me go on my TED Talk rant. I love I've heard, I heard my, my, I've heard parents say, they came to my play one time. He said, my son is in high school. He's pursuing this writing. I want him to become a doctor. But I saw your play and, you know, it was good. And so maybe if you can make it, maybe I'll encourage him. And so that's also why I do this. And like, it's not just to honor our parents' generation. I think what you, what mm. you and I were saying is we realize we're at this stage in our life, in our 30s, where life and death comes, I'm, I'm, I'm just making an assumption, but I think you'll agree with me. Life and death comes at waves for us. Our teachers are passing away. Our elders yeah. are passing away. Our friends are having kids. I'm having kids. And you think, what's my role here at this moment in life? It's not just to be a bridge between that old generation and new generation. I have to pave the way for this young generation so that inshallah, God willing, when you and I are old and hopefully healthy, that young generation will say, the world's effed up but at least you guys tried and at least you guys paved the way for us and we learned through your F-ups. So thank you for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) I'm curious when you, you know, when you talk about what your parents went through and, and I love that. Well, before we move on, I should really just acknowledge that I love what you're saying that in a way, we sit on this precipice and there is this desire to honor the past and also to build this new path forward. Mm. Um, 
in a way I'm realizing, you know, per our earlier conversation, that's kind of the way I look at the country too. I think, look, we're right in the middle of this spot. And if we don't honor all of the past, we can't build the future. And to me, honoring all of the past means the good, the bad, and the ugly and the beautiful. Um, and I want, I want the future to be good and beautiful, but I, I am curious cause you know, you said, and it was such a, a blip on the radar in, in that beautiful moment that you just shared, but you said, you know, the racism, the discrimination that our parents experienced. I know that you were born in the Bay area of California and a lot of people think of the Bay area as being like very diverse, very progressive was, was it not in the eighties for your parents? The, so I was very spoiled in the fact that I grew up in the Bay Area, California, uh, mostly Fremont. We call it Fremontistan. And my America was my carpool to the all-boys Jesuit Catholic High School Bellarmine with Grav Singh, my Hindu friend, Alan Loggins, my Black Christian friend whose parents are from Africa, and Brian Rothbeck, my Jewish friend, uh, talking about Star Trek. You know, um, I was very lucky that I got that snapshot of America, that mosaic of America in that microcosm of the Bay Area. At the same time, though, uh, you know, for my parents, even though they had a great, you know, they, they don't sit there and complain about it. But yeah, my, my dad, you know, told me recently with what's happening in this country. He's like, I came to this country in 1966. Mm. I lived through those protests. I lived through the war. I saw what was happening. And this is a, something really encouraging. If you really think about it, this is going to be something heartwarming. He said, at that time, you know, we were really struggling for equality, but the white majority fled to Nixon, if you remember, in the late 60s, right? They mm-hmm. were terrified. He says, this time I look out with Jihad and I'm seeing these protests and I'm seeing these demonstrations. This time they're with us. And he mm-hmm. goes, they're with us. What was really powerful about that is he said us. And the reason why I want to just focus on that for a second is he included himself with Mm. the solidarity movement of people going for progress. For my parents' generation, and I think this goes across not just South Asia, but a lot of immigrants, you'll hear them say this. Those who are in their 60s and 70s, oh, those are just what Americans do. Oh, those Americans. And they do it kind of unconsciously. And I've always challenged them. I'm like, wait a second. You're also American. They go, oh, you know what I mean. And I think unconsciously what that immigrant generation does is they kind of separate themselves because America is code word for what to, to them? White. 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 Well, and they never felt fully welcomed by America. There you they go. They weren't allowed to assimilate by America. They weren't seen as fully American. American. Mm-hmm. You're not seen as the ordinary American. You're not seen as being part of the homeland of the heartland of the rust belt you are not seen as being quote unquote wait for it electable in fact if you have Mm. two x chromosomes you're still not seen as being electable you're not seen as the mainstream you are sophia ethnic it's coded subtle dna embedded within everything of america housing Mm. media jobs language Mm. so if you're a person of color and immigrant even if you don't consciously sit here and wrestle with this, like we have been for the past hour, you unconsciously absorb all of this. Mm. And so I think for my parents' generation, uh, even though we grew up very lucky in the Bay Area and eventually in the Bay Area suburbs with that type of diversity that is unfortunately like, you know, lacking in say West Virginia, uh, it is inescapable 
when you turn on the TV and you either see yourself erased or villainized. Mm. And you right. sit there and go, this is what this country thinks of me. And, and one quick story I'll tell you is, you know, you and me are storytellers. I started off as a playwright. I don't know if people know that. After That's college. how you started. Yeah. That was, uh-huh. I, I wrote a play uh, in, uh, I was a senior, 9-11, UC Berkeley, undeclared, in a short story writing class taught by Ishmael Reed. The two towers fell. Uh, I was a leader of the Muslim Student Association. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, just like now, this was that was my baptism of fire. You know, for this young generation, it's the Trump administration. For us, I was 20. Uh, that was our moment of reckoning. Uh, that was my X-Men danger room simulation where I, I got all my training. Because uh, now I have to be an activist. I have to be a leader. I'm giving speeches. And I'm, the whole time, I'm like, why do I have a microphone in front of 300 people? I have to figure out my major. And wow. my teacher, who's an African-American titan of literature, of MacArthur Genius, Ishmael Reed, I was in short story, short story writing class. He said, I'm going to take you out of the short story writing class because I think you're a playwright. Stor- dialogue and characters are your strength. You write me a play. Uh, why don't you write me a play like Death of a Salesman or Fences, uh, an American classic, but from the perspective of what are you again? I said, Pakistani, Muslim, overweight, terrified. He goes, yeah, write me a, a perspective like of an of a American family who's Pakistani, Muslim, and you have 20, you have two months to give me 20 pages or you'll fail. And I remember when he told me this, he said, I'm a black man looking at what's happening in this country. You're going to get hazed for the next 10 years. Wow. And he says, the way we have fought back black people is primarily through arts and culture. We've told our story. So you should tell your story. And and the reason I'm going to connect this real quick is I did my play. First time I did it was 2004. I did it for my community and a South Asian Muslim uncle came up to me and said, Beta, why are you wasting your time on this useless stuff like plays? Do something useful like go protest. And then you fast forward five years. I did the play in 2009 in New York and then the play got some success. But he was witnessing the post 9-11 hazing because he had made the American dream. He was in the suburbs. Mm. He had a six-figure job. He had the 2.3 kids. He thought that, you know, America loved him, and he saw that he was still an outsider. So he told me, I turn on the TV, and they still see me as either a terrorist or a cab driver. I wish I would have made my sons, at least one of them, to a journalist and storyteller like you. So my prayers are with you. Keep telling our story. Mm. So you asked me a very simple question, and I went kind of on a on a path there, but for that older generation, I think, and you were mentioning your parents, my parents love AOC. My parents love all these progressive activists. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you guys were like really traditional. What happened? She goes, I love the passion. I love the fact that they're outspoken. I love the fact that they're smart. And I love the fact that they're finally people who look like us are finally rising. And so yeah. that's why I feel like to see my parents' generation have this moment of like, just where they feel like they can flex a bit. Mm-hmm. That's, and, and, and I feel like that even fuels me even further. If you and I succeed, that generation looks and says they get to do everything we couldn't do that we were not allowed to do. Mm. So I think that's powerful. I'm curious for you, you know, there's so many things I want to ask you about. And No, I and, talk too much, so I'll, I'll no, talk No, I mean, less. by the way, so do I. But I, <laughs> hello, we could do this all day. But there's there there are some things I think are really interesting. You know, you, you, you talked about the play and I, and I'd love for you to tell people, you know, what it is and what it's about. But I'm also curious about when we talk about you growing up in the Bay area and your carpool talking about star Wars, um, 
<laughs> you know, the tennis ball story, your family finally having to accept that you're a left-handed kid. I, I'm curious how you go from being a kind of awkward left-handed kid uh, who who started school only knowing three words of English, which yes. I know about you, to becoming a playwright by the time you were in college. Like, yeah. how... How does that happen? What what steers you as a child? How 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 does how does that pathway open for you? I you know I w- without giving you my entire life history and the limited time, but for sake of brevity, I, I think first and foremost there is a natural desire. I think that I had and probably you had uh, that we took joy in sharing and telling stories. Mm-hmm. And that joy and that passion, uh, that creativity always existed in me, but it existed in a shy, awkward, overweight kid who wore husky pants, who, <laughs> who, who just couldn't talk to girls to save his life and was just, you know, just left hand, just awkward. And it was like, a, I think there's a theme in this conversation of progress, right? Nothing happens overnight. And I think it's important for people who are listening who, who want to become storytellers, who want to get the platform, they think, oh, we just made it. And I think it's important to talk about the failures because the failures are what help us on this journey, the steps, right? And so I fell into it because I remember, I'll just give you one story. I was 10 years old. I was so sick. They were going to like kick me out of school. I had terrible allergies. I was overweight. I was shy. And Miss Peterson from Kentucky gave me a short story. Uh, uh, excuse me. Miss Peterson from Kentucky gave us an assignment to write a one-page short story. I wrote a 10 page short story and she gave me an A plus, 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 plus. And then she said, she said, you have to get up in front of the homeroom and re- recite the story. And I'm like, I can't, I'm fat. I'm scared. No, she goes, do it. And then I did it. And for the first time ever, my homeroom class like applauded and they were with, I had them, they were with me. Then she said, you should recite this in front of the talent show which includes the upperclassmen, the fifth graders, sixth graders, and seventh graders. And I'm like, no, please, I'm fat, I'm shy. She goes, do it. And I did it and I had them. And really it was that mm. moment where I realized I'm, I might've unlocked a superhero power. And I've shared the story before, but it's a true story. It's a good story. I went home, I gave that story to my father who was drinking chai, he read it. And he said, Beta, I think you have a talent. I think you should become a writer. And my mom was in the kitchen. She ran out and she said, but first become a doctor. <laughs> true, true, true story but I, it was like you know it was just it was a progress and then once I, that happened you get a little bit of confidence and then I kind of became the class clown and I was able to like involve my teachers in the jokes mm. and I got more confidence and in, and in high school I always wanted to do the improv comedy uh, the troupe was called Sanguine Humors I auditioned each year I was so shy each time I held back I held back I held back I got rejected my fourth year my senior year, I said, F it. It's my last year. I'm going to just put myself out there. Whatever happens, happens. And I went, I went for broke. I killed. I killed. And they literally are like, yo, you're in. And so then I started flexing with, uh, with comedy. We mm-hmm. go to college. In college, I don't know what I want to be. I'm like you. I, I took everything. I had no idea what I wanted. I took every class. I took econ. I took world religions. I took English. Yeah. I took anthropology. Like That's how I am. I, th- I feel like we, we're like these um, generalists, which is not a diss. Like we just, we're intrigued by a lot of things. Being, uh, into, being curious about everything yeah, is we're cool, curious. I think. So I did student advocacy and I did the activism. I got on the Muslim Students Association. It was the first time I saw Muslims. I was so excited. And then we started our own sketch comedy troupe. It was the first sketch comedy troupe uh, in uh, Berkeley. 
And I originally came in as a writer, but apparently I was the one who was able to memorize the most dialogue and I did the most characters. So I ended mm-hmm. up anchoring most of the sketches. So I ended up becoming like the lead actor, then the writer. And so people are like, yo, you're like praying and like at in Friday prayers and you're leading like these protests. And then I see you wearing a skirt being a Scottish immigrant, uh, you know, in the sketch <laughs> called Scottish Gardens, uh, which is like, is about an ordinary Scottish immigrant who tried to like steal Olive Gardens. He calls it the Scottish Gardens, right? So they're like, yo, what's up with that? And so all of this is to say is that the stuff that I did out of passion, just storytelling, the movies that Kashif and I made during summers because we were dorks and no one used to invite us. We made home movies where I was the lead actor and he was the director and we used to write it together. All of that laid the foundation, my director told me, Carla Blank, of me becoming the playwright. And the play Mm -hmm. that we did, which by the way, I did it for my, I started for my 21st birthday in 2001. I finished it for my 23rd birthday as a present to myself in 2003. It's about a Muslim Pakistani American family, five members of a family stuck in a house. It's called the Domestic Crusaders. I was mocked and ridiculed by both my community and mainstream America. Mainstream America said that the mainstream will not be into it. One agent said that white people won't get it because there's no white people. Another agent said for your next piece, put white people in it so they can empathize. Uh, Other people said there's too much Urdu and Arabic in there. There's too much like foreign stuff. Get rid of it or put a glossary. An LA producer said, I love the play, but we should make Ted Danson the Pakistani immigrant father. And I laughed thinking it was a joke and he didn't laugh. I'm like, wait, are you serious? I said, I love Ted Danson. Cheers is great. Uh, Why Ted Danson? He said, Americans, white Americans like Ted Danson. And so there is a, the story that I want to give here is I was a stubborn shit. I am a stubborn shit. Mm. And I kept persisting throughout my entire career. And we got that play published in 2010. And I just got this email from McSweeney's who published it last week on their own saying, we're going to republish this play with the election coming up because we read it again and we're like, wow, this is really topical. And we Mm -hmm. think this play and this story should be out there. And do you mind if we republish it? I'm like, go ahead. And that play, which everyone said would not have any life, is being taught at colleges 17 years later. And before COVID, University of Virginia theater department called me and said, yo, can we do a stage reading? And I want to teach this play to my class. And the play has been performed in Canada and New York and England and and the Bay Area. People have gone in their... uh, Matt, uh, their doctorate on that play in Egypt, in London, in California. Wow. And so when everyone, someone tells you to take away the mirch, the masala, the specifics, all the stuff that is erased to assimilate, I went the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. The universal I found is in the specific. And, and I became the storyteller through a process of failure and humiliation, but also encouragement. There were people who encouraged me. And sometimes all you need, and I'll leave, I'll, leave, I'll leave this answer on this. You'll see someone in your family, in your community, that you think really has a talent. And, and I, I say this for women and people of color in particular. Oftentimes, we're just told our stories don't matter. Mm-hmm. And we're told not to flex. We're told to self-efface. And we do. 
And all we need sometimes is that one person in our family or in our squad who says, that was a really good poem. You Mm -hmm. should continue writing poems. Mm -hmm. Or Sophia, you have a talent. You were really good when you got up in front of the family and did those impressions. I think you're really good. You should do it. And we, we underestimate the power that has. And, and I'll, mm. I have a friend, Hassan Minaj, you know, I'm older than him. We've known each other for a long time. And he talks about this. You know, he didn't get that affirmation from his dad. He was like searching for it forever. And now he finally has it, right? But he kept, yeah. there's so many, and I'm sure you know this. There's so many of our colleagues and peers. I don't want to name them. If you knew them, you're like, whoa, to this day, they're still looking for that affirmation from their dad or their mom. You know of this. Course. Of because course. They, you know, and they're like, that, that trauma and that pain is real. They were able to sustain it and move through it. But there are so many who destroy and paralyze that talent and their dream within themselves because they don't get that mentorship. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that, that. And so I was really lucky that my parents always supported me. My friends supported me. And that's what I've been trying to do is that, you know, when you see me on CNN, going toe-to-toe or when you see me on, uh, on a panel kicking ass or you see me writing for the New York Times, that was a journey of a kid who didn't speak English mm-hmm. and who was so shy that he used to sweat profusely when he used to give, when he used to give speeches. Um, yeah. and, and so I, it's very important for people to know that, that it's a progress and it's a path, but that path is made so much easier when you at least have one person in your corner. Yeah. Well, and that path, you know, to... to get to brag on you for a second as as your friend, this Please. path that led you, you know, you say you're a recovering lawyer. I love that like in the middle of all this storytelling, you happen to just like, yeah, I'll also go to law school. I'll just I'll oh, please, yeah, I'm a lawyer. I'll please the family. Right. Um, but you know, this path led you to become a Peabody nominated producer. You you made this incredible series called The Secret Life of Muslims. That's right. Um, you got lucky. Which is these short form first person documentary films that feature all kinds of Muslims in America. You, um, you were also the lead author and researcher of uh, a seminal report that came from the center for American progress called fear Inc. The roots of, yeah. Islam- of roots of the Islamophobia network in America. Um, and, and you're mentioning that domestic crusaders is going to be republished by McSweeney's, which is phenomenal because now the listeners know where they can go to find it. But for yeah. the first two, where can folks who want to learn more, where can people watch Secret Life of Muslims? Where can people find uh, the Fear, Inc. report? Because if I know my audience, and I think I do, one of the things I love most about them is when I say we have homework to do, listeners do it. And then, and then they hit me up, they send me DMs, they, they, they send feedback on projects. So, it, you know, my, my people who are listening at home, these are, these are the kinds, my peeps, like these are the kinds of incredibly eye-opening um, content streams that, that you can go and put your eyeballs on and, and become even more intelligent and cool and smart than you all already are. So uh, where, where are these things findable? So uh, I, they're all, they all exist on the internets. I'm a creature of the internets. I will say this, the Fear Incorporated investigative report is called Fear Incorporated, the Roots of the Islamophobia Network in America. It's mm-hmm. 138 pages. Don't read the, all, all the 138 pages if you're a nerd, but we deliberately did an executive summary, which is like a few pages, and we did like uh-huh. graphics. The reason why I'm stre- uh, stressing that is I did that in 2011, right before Barack Hussein Obama was being elected again. I was mm-hmm. asked to do that because at that time, 
the think tank said, where are all these anti-Muslim memes coming from? Obama is a Muslim and Sharia is a threat to America. Mm. We traced the funding, connected the dots and showed how the infrastructure works where a talking point that emerges from a think tank literally becomes a talking point for Donald Trump. The reason why I'm mentioning this right now is at that time when it came out, they're like, Wad, you're crazy. However, Anders Breivik, the mass murderer, ended up killing 77 people coinciding with the release of that document. And the people that we mentioned in that document, he cites in his manifesto. Wow. That he was inspired by them when he went and attacked and killed Muslims. You fast forward nine years, 2020, the people in that document who were considered fringe by 2013, 2014, are now either in the White House or one step removed away from the Trump White House. Wow. That's terrifying. So, yeah. And so to take a look at that and then Secret Life of Muslims, just Google Secret Life of Muslims and you'll see these really wonderful videos, like great videos of a lot of celebrities that you know, who you probably didn't think were Muslim and just talking about the stuff we're talking about, like how it is to be a Muslim uh, and some of these wonderful vignettes about, about people and the amazing things they're doing. Mm. And Biden just yesterday, you know, going off the conversation real quick, you were saying is Biden yesterday said, you know, I wish schools taught uh, more about Islam and the right wing freaked out. And I always kept telling people, like you said, I'm a practicing Muslim, went to an all boys Jesuit Catholic high school who studied the Bible, who went to yeah. Israel and Jerusalem, studied Judaism. I studied Hinduism and Buddhism in college. I'm still a practicing Muslim. By the way, learning is not scary. Learning is good. And yeah. it's made me more informed. It's made me empathize with people. When people are doing their specific rituals, I know what they're doing. When I mention it, they feel like a sense of like, they get hardened. They're like, oh, wow, you know this. And mm -hmm. you get taste your food. So don't be afraid of learning people. Yeah. I just love that. That's exactly, that's exactly how I've always felt. And I, and I do find it wild, you know, to your point about what was considered fringe in 2013 being yeah. everywhere in 2020. Does it seem odd to you that, that so many people are, are having a moment that seems, at least from the outside, like they're just discovering that racism is real or Islamophobia <laughs> yeah. or, or yeah. misogyny? Like, Wild. you know, I'm wondering how, or, or maybe it had to get this bad for, for people to, to have a real reckoning with it. But, but when we talk about what has been, and, and you in particular highlight, you know, the, the, per the perpetuation of these myths about your faith that hit mainstream in 2011, I think so much about how when there are acts of terror in the U.S., anytime I hear about one, I hold my breath and I just go, please don't, please don't, please don't, please don't. Because I don't, I don't want the person who committed some kind of act of violence to be any shade of not white, because I know yeah. what's going to happen to those communities if they are. And then what I'm always shocked about, and that's not to say, obviously, I want white people. I don't want anybody to be committing, committing friggin' domestic terrorism. It's terrifying. But I'm always so dumbfounded by when it's a white guy, he gets called a lone wolf, yeah. mentally unstable, or a, a sad boy. But when someone perpetuates an act of terror— who is a brown person, who is a Muslim person, who is a black person. Um, you know, I think about what happened in Dallas, you know, a black man in uniform. Right. It, it turns into something 
that it doesn't when it's a white guy. Yeah. You just did the minority prayer. The minority prayer is when there is an act of domestic terrorism, all of us sit there and pray to God, please let it be a white guy. Please let it be a white guy. Not because we have anything against white people. It's because we know that whoever is considered white will not be held responsible for the criminal action of one or two individuals. Right. Whereas, Well, there isn't a backlash against white people in their communities. Exactly. There isn't. Like, like what I see when, when something happens, you know— for example, and of course, it's a horrific thing that happened. But also, so many horrific things have happened throughout history. And, and it's, it's the response being different that baffles me. You know, I remember after 9-11 happened, watching friends of mine and watching footage of people, you know, being screamed at people, by, by people who look like me. People who look like you being screamed at by people who look like me. Go home! And I'm like, that person lives here. What are you saying? Yeah. Like that person's as much an American as you are. And and you see it now with Corona because Trump can't help but be a racist. So he's calling it the, you know, the Chinese virus. And I'm like, dude, this is a novel coronavirus. There have been coronaviruses around the world for years. We have, we literally have 11 international labs studying them, which is the only reason we're so far along the path to a vaccine already. Yet he's trying because this came out of Wuhan to say it's China's fault which is so crazy to me. And and I see, you know, these lovely Asian American people being screamed at yeah. in the streets of, of the United States, go home. And I'm like, this is their home. And so hate I, crimes have increased against so Asian much, Americans. So much, yeah. so, so much. Well, it's, a, it's a collective blame, right? It's like, so it's, you know, the, the reason why I call it the minority prayer is when a white guy does it, all of whiteness is not blamed. Exactly. All of whiteness is not indicted. All of whiteness is not convicted. All of whiteness is not sentenced. All of whiteness is not summoned in front of a nameless judge, jury, and executioner to mm-hmm. condemn terrorism. And their loyalty and patriotism is not held as suspect. When it's the rest of us, it's not just all of our communities. It's our ethnicity. It's our religion, which is indicted, mm-hmm. convicted, and sentenced. So where mm-hmm. are the moderate Muslims? And how come you haven't condemned terrorism? And I'm like, bro, I don't know this guy. I've never met him. He's committed a violent act in a country I've never visited. And right. the media coverage is that whenever there is uh, a Muslim uh, a suspect versus a white suspect of domestic terrorism, there is four times as much TV coverage, seven times as much newspaper mm. coverage. And the labeling is important. Like you said, when it's a white guy, lone wolf, radical, quiet, shy guy. Uh, whenever someone even suspects a Muslim without any motivation, immediately terrorism, which makes mm. the whole label of terrorism so silly in the last 20 years because who gets to be a terrorist? And right. usually it's, de- it's defined by your melanin, your skin tone. And the number one domestic terror threat in America, ladies and gentlemen, is white supremacist terrorism in 2020. Yeah. yeah, and the FBI's been releasing reports about the dangers of white supremacist terrorism, about this resurgence of this neo-Nazi nightmare. And white people want to ignore it. And, and I guess I don't, I don't understand it because to your point, when you said like some guy did something in a country I've never even been to, what, what does this have to do with me? Like, I don't know any white people who during the IRA crisis in Ireland were being asked to like condemn violence. People were like, oh my God, this crazy thing is happening. Have you seen there's bombs? It, It wasn't blamed on us. And, and I wonder, you know, and you just highlighted it, the difference in coverage, but I am also curious when we talk about media and its role, because you are a journalist, you work in mm. media, you so often are, are asked to be on 
panels where these things are discussed. You're asked, you know, you talk about in your bio that you 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 kind of feel like the this the Spider Man of like token brown guys yeah. in in these spaces. I, and I and I hate to laugh, but I was like, God, that's a good way. You, I like that you put your. I like that you used the Spider Man analogy. Like you're funny, buddy. Um, like I just I appreciate your sense of humor, even in even in these wild spaces. But I'm curious, have you ever? had to say or ask that when you are announced on a panel or as a speaker, you are not announced as Muslim journalist, Wajahat Ali, you know, are you, you, you have you ever had to say like, well done. Uh, well, yeah, yeah no. but it's like, have you ever had to say, could you just maybe call me a journalist? Could you, could you announce me in some other way? You know, so, what? So we'll make this juicy. I, I don't know. I don't know if I've actually discussed this on a podcast before, but uh, CNN, uh, a couple of years ago, it was inauguration, I think it's 2016. I wasn't a contributor at that time, but I remember the first couple of times it kept bringing me on, they announced, and now we have Muslim journalist, Wajahatali. and I'm sitting there on TV and I just smile. Like you said, I have a sense of humor. I'm like, I didn't put that in my bio. And, <laughs> uh, it was and like, you know, the, the host and the producer were always kind to me. I had a great time at CNN. It wasn't like just trying to be like, you know, dismissive or rude, but like, and now we have Muslim journalist, Wajahatali, uh, and another white lady. And now we have a Muslim journalist, Wajahatali. And so I remember the first time I was like, I was speaking about Jeff Sessions. Uh, and they're like, Wajahatali as a Muslim, what do you think about the possibility of Jeff Sessions becoming attorney general? And as a person of color and a woman, we have realized that we have to Trojan horse certain situations to our advantage. So what mm-hmm. I said was this, it was, I said, well, I could tell you as a Muslim, but I could also tell you as an American why he's bad for all of our communities, pivot. And I did my homework and I kicked ass for two minutes and she was mm-hmm. fact checking me in real life. And she's like, well, he, he seems to be right. And then again, Muslim journalist, Muslim journalist. So I never corrected it. I always smiled. But it came to a point where people were watching and they're like, what the F is a Muslim journalist? And how come no one ever introduces anyone as like, here's the Jew, now right. the Catholic, now the white lady. Yeah. And so it's- the, it's. I've this, never been introduced as white actress. Like, yeah, white actress, that? Sophia. And, and not only that, the, the, the ghettoization, the pigeonholing of mm-hmm. your expertise and your value is limited only as the Muslim, only yes. as the woman. Only yeah. as the black person. Because they kept saying, again, as a Muslim, what do you think? And I'm like, I could tell you as an American, mm-hmm. no happens to be a Muslim. And so that happened again. The next week they invited me because I did so well. They're like, you know, John Lewis, rest in peace, speaking about a Titan and carrying oh. on his legacy. But if you remember, Trump mocked Lewis. So they brought me on again on a panel. There was a panel full, full of people. They brought, they, they introduced everyone else. And now they're like, and now Muslim journalist would tell you, how does it feel to you? And I'm like, I can tell you as an American why this is bad. And so it's how do you escape and confront and booby trap and Trojan horse and explode these boxes that they put us in and they put women in all the time where these stereotypes are used against you. You're seen as Mm -hmm. being too emotional. You're not seen as being um, neutral. You're not seen as being objective. You're only good for the women's stories. You're on the woman beat. And you're like, yo, Mm -hmm. life intersects. And I could talk Mm -hmm. about all these things in one podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you're white, it's like yogurt. You can be everything. Uh, And I'm like, I would like to be yogurt, but like, you know, with taste of yogurt. Yeah. 
Maybe oh, not I, just vanilla. Yeah, not just vanilla. And I'm nothing against vanilla. I love vanilla. Some no, of my favorite. Either, but... Some of my favorite yogurt is vanilla. But that's actually the hilarious thing is that when I talk about being able to see through the lie of whiteness, then I occasionally get some white people who get real mad at me and are like, "Why are you apologizing for being white?" Yeah. And I'm like, "No, I'm not. I just I see that a system. There's a difference between being an individual and being in a system." Yeah. There's a difference between being the human you are and being stereotyped for something. And it's like, right. it's so clear to me that the system of whiteness, that the the dying beast of white supremacy has nothing for me. No. I, I like myself better knowing that actually. And I still look the same. So, you know, I'm I try to encourage people who who are nervous about the conversation. I'm like, come in here. The water is warm. It's really nice. And like, there's and way better food. <laughs> and we're friendly. And there's like, yeah. if, you, if you don't, if you don't like, if you don't like swimming, there's floaties. Yeah. Uh, oh, and, for and like, sure. Like we have all the jacuzzi. things. I had this woman and of course, like, you know, a- a- angry white lady, like yelling at me the other day. And she was like, why don't you take your coloring books and your support dogs to Canada? And I was like, first of all, I love coloring books. And second of all, like, you're a mom of two young kids. I hope neither of your dogs ever needs a support animal, but like I've trained a few and they're pretty great. And also Canada's nice and their healthcare is free. Like, why are you so mad about it? You know, so similarly to you, like I just try to poke fun at the ridiculousness of it all. And, and I think you're right. I think when you have any kind of public platform and you say something, whether it's me talking about how this system doesn't have anything for me or or you highlighting that you are you are an american and a and a journalist and a playwright and an author and a storyteller and a father and and a son and you are so many things that to be pigeonholed by just an aspect of what makes you you feels weird i i try so hard as well to take up more of an expanded space to mm. not let someone put me in, in a box because it makes me feel smaller than I am. And, and the whole point of, you know, the dream we pursue here is to be big, you know, to expansion, to grow, to expand, to, to experience. And I, I wonder for you, you know, we've talked so much about career and writing and these things. You are also so open about your family, you know, your, your lovely wife, your being a dad, um, you, you even gave a Ted talk called the case for having kids and, and you talk about, yes, it's complicated and yes, kids are expensive and, and, and all of these things, but, but that we owe it to ourselves in terms of progress to invest in our kids and also to invest in, in the people who want to be parents. Now it's the parents who rear the adults of the future. I, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about that because obviously I'm obsessed with your journalism brain and that's how we became friends. But I I am also invested in your life as a dad. I, I feel really invested in your family. And, and for anyone who's listening to this, I do want to expand the ways they're getting to know you into a more full picture of, of who you are. And so I I wonder if you can talk about deciding to start a family, if you can talk about what motivated you to give that TED talk, like op- open that, open that part of the box for us. I thought I would be, I'm 39. I'm going to turn 40, hopefully in a couple of months. I'm a Scorpio. Um, I thought in my late eighties, 
I wouldn't make it till I was 35. Now that sounds like a, the melodrama of most men and women in their late 20s because we all think like, you know, oh, 30, it's over. I'm going to die. The earth will swallow me up whole. I have to do everything. But, you know, just my life at that time and the struggles, my health, I never saw myself, I just didn't see a timeline beyond 35. And I'm South Asian and in our culture, just like in society, oftentimes the test for men is material. And hmm. the stereotypical test for women is maternal. So right. Sophia could be a badass actress uh, and a host and an activist and just have a wonderful, fulfilling life. Right. But she's single and she doesn't have kids. <laughs> Bichari, poor Sophia, right? And so I just struggled and struggled. There was just a lot of stuff that happened in our 20s with my family. And it just, you know, we were always struggling. And so mm. I was 31. And I was completely broke, but everyone thought I was a baller because I had done Fear Inc. and then done the play and they had seen me on, mm. on media. And they're like, well, Jad, when he talks about being broke, he's just exaggerating. But like, I was almost homeless. Like, that was my life. I was like, mm. I had a foot in like literally poverty where I was and then a foot in like success. And I had a smile about it. I'm like, I feel like I'm in a Twilight Zone episode. I don't know if this is a comedy or a horror movie. Mm. And the reason I'm mentioning this is, you know, you, you don't want to be a scrub when you go out and talk to girls. And so the women who are interested in me were like these brilliant, beautiful baller women who were like, like just very proactive in their interest in me. And I, I just used to just kind of like C block myself all the time. Mm. And I think that C block was not because I hated myself because I'm just like, if she really knew what she was getting into, she would not come into this mess. And I remember I had a near-death experience. It was like November, right after Thanksgiving, about eight years ago. And what happened? I had a condition inherited from my paternal side, a superventricular super tachycardia, mm. where like growing up, my heart was like randomly, it would be like a tabla beat. Like, mm. And then sometimes I would just pass out. And mm. so I kind of was used to this, even though it's totally not normal it started increasing in my 20s. And I think it was probably because of stress. Now, that's the thing with stress is even though I'm mentally and spiritually and emotionally strong, your body still takes on the, the consequences and the effects of stress, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know this. 18-hour mm. shoots. So you're like, I'm fine. Oh, I have rashes everywhere. I wonder why. And your doctor's <laughs> like, stress. So I went to the gym to do a lame exercise, ellipticals for 20 minutes just to get a sweat. I get on the elliptical, start it, start it and my heart rate jumps up and I'm like, I'm going to pass out. Oh, crap. Usually, I'm able to lie down, breathe, get myself normal. This time, I didn't have time. I sit down on any chair I could find. It was the bicycle seat. So the bicycle seat is hilarious because you put down, you sit on the seat and you put your feet on the straps and the straps start yeah. moving. I'm like, oh, shit. And then literally, there's a guy next to me. He goes, you don't look good. I pass out. I wake up. My back is on the floor. My legs are spread apart. People are surrounded by me looking terrified. My heart rate's still going at like 230, 240. I could feel it. Wow. Usually when you pass out, your heart rate resets. But this time it didn't reset. They bring in the, the, the emergency. Uh, they bring the ambulance. My heart rate still hasn't like, set. They take me to the Washington Hospital, which thank God was right across the street. And now my, they give me all the drugs. Heart rate still hasn't set. They cardiovert me three times. Cardioversion is like three, two, one, clear. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And I was supposed I'm to be studying as- all of this for work right now. Like, yeah, I was supposed whoa. to be asleep. I was supposed to be asleep, but each time they, they were about to say clear because I'm so stubborn. I'm like, hey guys, what's happening? Clear, boom. So I remember, <laughs> I still feel what it's like to get that cardio version. Uh, still didn't clear. And so now I'm sitting there sweating in my white, uh, like Hanes shirt with my gym shorts, my nasty ass sneakers. And the room is filled with nurses and doctors who look terrified, which is not a good situation when you're in the gurney and doctors look terrified. No. And I have pulmonary edema. I'm, I start choking now, like, cause my fluids coming out and real quick, <sighs> let me just put it this way. Anyone's gone through a near death experience your body just tells you, like, you know, you know, you're going to go. And so I have this conversation with the universe, this conversation with God, where I have an audit of my life and it's getting worse. And I kind of feel like my time's up and I knew my time was up and um, I made peace with my exit. I said I had a good life, but I only had one regret, which was interesting because I never thought about this that until that moment. My run regret was, shit, I'm going to die alone. Not necessarily alone that I didn't have loved ones, but I'm going to die without a partner. I didn't invest in a partner and a family. I should mm. invest in a family. That's my one regret. And right as, as soon as I had this, this, this epiphany, my heart rate stabilized. Whoa. I swear to God, I'm not making, this is not a Hollywood story. My heart rate stabilized. And then the doctor the next day, and I have to do his accent because he's like Eastern European. He comes and sees me. They have to keep me overnight. He's an ER doctor who literally went up and like found me. He goes, hey, man, I have to come see you because yesterday, holy shit, you scared the shit out of us. And I'm like, I don't think a doctor is supposed to say that. He goes, I'm so glad you're doing fine. But the reason why I did this huge setup to this very simple question of you said family and marriage is that's what compelled me to get out on the dating scene again. And like eight months later, I ended up being married. I ended up eloping with my wife, who was my friend, a friend who I swear to God, it was platonic, but a lot of people over the years said, you guys should talk. And I literally called her. I was in California. She's in DC. And like a nerd, like straight up pride and prejudice. I called her. I was like, Hey, can I talk to you with the intention of maybe making this romantic? And she goes, okay. And we talked for three hours the first night. We talked for three hours the second night. We talked for three hours the third night. And at the beginning of the fourth conversation, in a very romantic way, I said, yeah, so I love you and uh, uh, you're the one. So you want to get married or what? And she, <laughs> and she, she, she was, she, her scarlet letter was that she was divorced twice. My scarlet letter was poverty. Uh, I, I would even say in South Asian cultures, I just think for men and women in general, because mm-hmm. the stigma is real for women. Mm-hmm. Why'd she get divorced twice mm-hmm. in her 20s? And a month later, we got eloped. Uh, we married. And then we told people. Uh, I moved to DC. And, you know, my life changed uh, after marriage. Everything got better. And we had a kid. And then we had a second kid. Mm-hmm. And the second kid, you know, you mentioned the TED Talk, the, the case for having children. I went to Vancouver last year, April. For this TED talk, uh, we found out my wife was pregnant with our third kid. So that was, we found out a month earlier in March. I'm in Vancouver the second day. My wife calls me. She's crying. And she goes, 
and she's never cried. She's very emotionally, spiritually strong. She's a doctor. She like, she's gone through the shit and she's the one consoling people. I'm like, what's wrong? And she goes, I took Nuseba, our daughter, who was two at the time, to the doctors, and they found bumps over her stomach. I'm like, she, did she eat something? And she goes, I think it's bad. When they find bumps over the stomach, it's cancer. I'm like, cancer? What the? F- I just left her two days ago. Like, her stomach was flat. And she goes, no, I think it's cancer. And I remember I just balled up my fist and I punched a pillow and I said, no. And right then and there, any parent will, will recognize this, this prayer that I did. I did the barter prayer. I call it the barter prayer. Mm. And I immediately I said, all right, God, my life for hers. Easy trade. 38-year-old man, two-year-old girl. Let's do this. Because you want to absorb all the pain of your child. That's just how it is. Like when you have a kid, just everything changes. It has to change. You're now responsible for a life. And so mm. when people say like, what does that mean? Like your life changes. How is it possible to love another person? And to continue with this theme of expansion, that's what happened, Sophia. You have a kid. I held Ibrahim, my son, for the first time. My heart expanded. Like mm-hmm. my universe expanded. And I'm like, I, I didn't know I had the capacity to love more. Because mm-hmm. I love my wife and I have the capacity to love more of this child. And I had Nuseba. And so my whole speech, the case for having children, people, it's a Trojan horse speech if you go and see it. The speech is actually talking about how we are having a crisis in certain countries uh, of not having enough kids Mm. in the United States, in Europe, in Japan, and like how not having enough kids is wrecking us economically and how people like China and Japan are struggling now, literally begging young people to have kids, right? Uh, And the whole Trojan horse was to examine why this is happening the effects on society and my Trojan horse comes at the end where I said, you need to have progressive pronatal policies in helping especially women with healthcare, with equality, because people want to have kids, but they can't afford it. People in America want to have kids, but they don't have healthcare. And what they've seen in Europe is when you give people progressive policies where there's paid parental leave, affordable childcare, affordable healthcare, when women are literate and giving economic opportunities, the entire boat rises, society rises, and all you people are freaking out not having kids. Guess what? Women will have kids because they can afford to have kids and they won't die while having children. That's a whole Trojan horse. So here I was, well, here I was hit with this news of my daughter having cancer. Now I have to go on the TED main stage. And for like two days, my, my head's just circling around. And I told my wife, should I come back? Should I come back? What's happening? She goes, wait for, for what the doctors say. Wednesday morning, I think it was Wednesday morning, I have to go up on the TED stage. Uh, in the morning, it gets confirmed. She has stage four liver cancer. So I, I'm like, should I even give this freaking speech? How can I give a speech about the case for having kids where my two-year-old daughter might not make it? And, and I felt like, I would only honor the truth of my story and Nuseba and the argument if I mentioned her. So I go on stage, I do the speech. And at the end, I say, by the way, as I'm giving the speech, telling you to have the case for having children, I just found out my daughter Nuseba has stage four cancer. And you heard a collective gasp, like literally the audience just like, ah. And, And then I just spoke from the heart and I said, despite this, my wife and I have said that's the best thing we've ever done was have these kids and invest in these kids. And kids represent 
like we said, that new generation represents the best of humanity. It represents potential. And it's our job to clean up the crap and to give them the best opportunity possible. So we will fight for Nuseba. And I thank you all for your prayers. And I just, I don't even remember what I said. And I left the stage. And mm. we, I went back home. And they said last April that her, this poor girl went through so much. Her tumor broke off. There was bleeding in her stomach. The chemo got delayed. We didn't think she'd survive May. Within three weeks, she looked like a POW kid, like bones. And she needed a liver transplant. And long story short, I didn't want to go off on this 10-minute TED Talk, but she had an anonymous liver donor step up. It took a community to help her. Over 500 people, mostly strangers, stepped up to be her liver donor. And um, how did that happen? Because this had gone so public and people knew. There you go. The power of stories. The mm. power of stories and the power of kindness. My mother... You know, everything is connected. Even this podcast is connected. The stories we've talked about. My mother said, in hindsight, if you had become a doctor, I don't know if Nuseba would have lived. Mm. It's because you're a storyteller with the platform that you had because I decided to share Nuseba's story. And my wife as at first was hesitant, but I said, I'm a storyteller. I think I'm onto something. People, at the very least, people will have, at the very least, people have awareness about the need for liver donors. I had mm-hmm. no idea that the liver grows back. Did you know that? I had no idea. You probably did because you're super smart. It can smart. regenerate. Yep. Yeah, it can regenerate. And so I'm like, yo, give your liver. The liver regenerates. You can like save someone's life. Here's my two-year-old daughter who just turned three. She's literally fighting for her life. If anyone can step up with O blood type, we need a liver. Um, I used my platform. Sorry, you want to say something. Well, I was going to ask, can you tell the folks at home who are like, what in, what in the hell do you mean a liver can grow back? How much of a liver, when someone becomes a donor, do they actually take from the donor, which then over time regenerates in their they body? They take a small sliver of an adult liver's donor, which then becomes the corresponds to the liver of the child. Uh, and then if you are the liver donor, you get a Mercedes scar. It looks like a Mercedes Benz symbol. <laughs> the liver will grow back within two to three months. You'll have your you'll liver again. Full but size the, liver? Yeah, full size liver again. This small sliver of the liver that you've given to the kid will now become his or her liver that will grow inside him or her into a full liver as she grows. He grows. Incredible. So I did this story at the CNN platform. I had social media. I had Twitter. I had Facebook. And there was this outpouring of support. And, you know, speaking about these troubled times and how everything's so jaded and things are so painful, if you give people the opportunity to be kind and selfless, I've seen through my example, people relish that opportunity. Over Mm. 500 people, mostly strangers, signed up to be a donor, including people who literally told me, I hate you and your politics. I hate everything you tweet, but I'm praying for your daughter. Mm. And we got the liver donor. And we did the post uh, liver transplant chemos in January. As of January, she is cancer free. And as soon as she was cancer free, my wife and I joked, wow, like we've gone through the, the thick of it. What will we do for the rest of our lives? We have to plan like normalcy again. And as soon as we said that coronavirus. Oh, God. But, but I always joke that we are doing so much better than most. And, and taking into account how people are suffering. I don't want to say this light in a lighthearted fashion, but Everything that you guys are doing, we did for the past year. Sanitizing, mm-hmm. uh, going, you know, being aware, uh, mm-hmm. social distancing. And compared to 
what happened last year, this is like a walk in the park. Wow. I am curious, you know, when when you talk about that, the sanitizing, the distancing, the things you had to do for Nuseba, that was you guys taking precautions because of her incredibly fragile immune system from the cancer yeah. or the chemo. Is, is she still considered immunocompromised? So she's on the border. I would say yes, mm. because even though her levels are good, we're still playing this. It's, it's medicine. It's like you, your, your kid becomes like a guinea pig. You, you, you have to experiment. Oh, she mm. had a reaction to that. Let's try this. Oh, this medicine. Right. Let's try that. Or her level's good. They're not, I mean, she's out of the woods, but not completely out of the forest. Got right. Um, because we still do the meds every day. She needs those life-saving meds. Uh, we still have to do the monthly. Now, these are the wins. Look, cancer disrupts all normalcy. And wins are measured every day by a new metric of normal. So if she doesn't vomit, win. If you don't go to the hospital, win. If the tests go from weekly to biweekly, win. So now mm-hmm. the tests are every month, win. Um, but because she's immunocompromised and because she literally, this poor girl, man, she's such a warrior. She, she's such a warrior that both Children's Hospital and Georgetown Hospital, all the staff still knows her. And you know, you always say, oh, it's my kid, I'm partial, yeah, they're special. They're like, no, 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 this girl is special. Because as she took the assault of chemo and cancer that takes down men and she never mm. complained. She's just like a tough chick. I just got lucky with that way. Which she just it's her, it's who she is. We named her after mm. a warrior princess. She lives up to the name. But <laughs> the reason why we got so pissed off when people weren't masking is like, yo, I've been in lockdown. My wife and I have been under lockdown since late February. And if people just did their job we would have opened up in America. And when I see people not giving a shit, I'm like, don't give a shit for me. But you got this three-year-old girl who just turned four last week, uh, (laughs) who literally struggled to survive. She fought to live. So for the immunocompromised, for our elders, just wear a mask. Mm -hmm. Just social, just try. Because Mm -hmm. you might be healthy. And by the way, that's questionable if you might be healthy because we're seeing young people getting effed up we all now have a one degree of separation story, I think. Yep. Um, but these these people are immunocompromised. Yo, like if they get it, especially with the hospitals at capacity right now in Houston, um, mm-hmm. they might not survive. A little girl might not survive. Your parents might not survive. I haven't seen my parents. I don't know if you've seen your parents, but my mom was supposed to come the week of national lockdown to see her grandkid, uh, Khadija, who is now eight months old. Mm-hmm. We, I don't know if I'm going to see my parents again. So... That's what frustrates me and angers me and my wife sometimes. But mm-hmm. I don't know if America's ever going to get into control, Sophia. I don't think so. Yeah, it's weird to me that we're politicizing a global pandemic. That's right. We're, we're making it about really petty uh, partisanship in our country when it's affecting the entire world. And, and we've seen countries around the world who stepped up for each other. And who just said, full lockdown, six weeks, everyone in a mask. And they're going back to normal. Yep. And we're not Italy. because we we have refused to look out for each other. And it's it's odd to me. And 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 I think you have such an amazing perspective on it because you've seen the way people have the capacity to look out for each other when the stories are not weaponized against them. You know, when we have 
the White House releasing opposition or attempting to on Dr. Fauci, who's one of the most storied, you know, uh, health experts in the country who's worked for Democrats and Republicans both forever. Um, when when you see people saying that wearing a mask is an assault on liberty, and I laugh. I'm like, did you ever say that about a sign that said no shirt, no shoes, no service? I didn't yeah. think so. Calm down. You just calm down. <laughs> You just settle down now. You just settle down. Have a Coke. You just calm down. Yeah, have a Coke and a taco. Um, I I think your perspective on how we can really show up for each other, and and as you said, this this willingness that people, even who vocally disagree with you, had to quite literally cut their bodies open and try to help save your daughter's life. Right. That's, it's like, I want us to be those Americans, you know? Right. And I think about the, the gentleman who wound up being her donor, do you do you guys have a relationship with him now? Do you know him? Did it yeah. remain anonymous? How, how does that whole thing work? So he was an anonymous donor and I found out about him right after I took Nuseba to the surgery table. Uh, hmm. they, they, they say, you know, one of the parents has to dress up in a gown and can take her uh, to the operating table. My wife said, you do it. So I did that and I kissed her on the forehead and she woke up right before I put her down. And I said, you know, your, your mama and Baba love you very much. Be brave. You're a brave girl. And I'll see you once you wake up. And then you don't know if she's going to wake up. So I kiss her mm. and we go sit in the waiting room and I get this DM from a uh, acquaintance. And he goes, um, yo, my friend, Sean just uh, messaged us, asked, uh, us to pray for him and that everything will go well. He's in surgery. I think he's your daughter's liver donor. Uh, and then he goes, oh shit, I don't oh. think I was supposed to tell you. Uh, and, and then, you know, cause he was anonymous and I'm like, well, I'll keep it on the deal. But like, I th- I'm assuming his family must be here. And if his family is here, why don't you give them my number? And if they want to reach out, they'll reach out. So his wife then texts me and we, we, we talk and I had no idea, but they keep, the donor's family and the, the patient's family separate uh, as much as possible. Wow. Because I think I just think for emotional reasons. So I think they were in another part of the hospital. So I kept texting her and I said, you know, thank you so much. What can we do for you? And she said, no problem. Let's meet afterwards. And I then go to the cafe because my wife was starving. And I bump into this woman who looks brown and, and her name is Ritha. She looks like a Ritha. And I'm like, are you? Ritha, the wife of Sean, and he goes, are you with Jahat? And that's where we met. Oh. And then and then I'm like, yo, and I'm like this. And, you know, and I met her father-in-law and I, like her father. And I said, thank you for your son, what he's done, what he's doing. And I remember right before this happened, we met Sean's doctor. The surgery had gone really well, like exceptionally well. The doctor said this was like the quickest, easiest surgery they've ever had. Wow. At this time, he was still anonymous. And this man, who's done multiple surgeries, he starts crying. And we're like, is everything okay? He goes, I just want to say that this anonymous donor, again, I, had, I did not receive the direct message yet. He goes, this anonymous donor, that you're, you're, your daughter got a good man's liver. And I'm like, why, why do you say that? He goes, most people, when they wake up, they ask the following, am I okay? When will I be healthy again? When can I go back to work? You know what this man asked me when he woke up? The first thing he said, I said, what? When can I donate blood again? So then this doctor starts crying and he goes, you just have a good man's liver. Just know that your daughter has a good man's liver. And so Sean then woke up and then that night we went and met him. And then we took a, 
yeah, I think it was the next night we went and met him and I took a video of Nuseba waking up and he saw her and he starts crying. And then, so we become like really good friends. He's come over, Nuseba knows him. And if anyone follows me on Twitter, <laughs> my, 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 uh, my pinned tweet is the tweet of Nuseba in her super gold costume and cape mm-hmm. running to Sean, her liver donor. That was in January. And for anyone who's gone through cancer, you know, when someone says, oh, I rang the bell, that means you ring the bell when you're cancer free. So mm-hmm. she rang the bell and she had multiple costume changes, but she decided ultimately to wear the Supergirl costume. And Sean that day happens to be a Pakistani Muslim guy in DC. Like, look how these things add up. He just lives like 20 minutes away. And he, he says, oh, I didn't go to work today because my tire was flat. So I can actually come with my wife and see her ring the bell. Ring the bell. So oh. Just how small things work out. So the donor happened to be there. I was there. Mm-hmm. Our family friends were there. She rings the bell. And then she runs to Sean and gives him a high five. And then we thought it'd be really cute. And we just dubbed uh, Eye of the Tiger over it. So you, you can see that. That's the best video. Like I see it like once huh. a day. I see it during coronavirus. I see it during this, uh, this, this racial anxiety. Uh, of Donald Trump, I see it during the the you know income inequality because it's so easy to get mired in cynicism and, and, and hate. Mm-hmm. But then you see things like that, and you're like, you know. And my wife and I, like we 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 have this conversation every single day. We just had it right before I had this podcast when I went to the, my Vinny man. She's sitting, Nuseba sitting with her brother. They're they're giggling. She's looking fantastic, and I'm just like, look at this. And my wife says, look at this. Just look at this. Like, look at this, this miracle baby. And so we sit there and say, I'll, I'll say the Arabic term, I'll translate. We say Alhamdulillah, which means the glory be to God, which means thank, mm. thank God. Um, and every day, that's just our, our, our reminder that there is goodness in the world. Never give up. This girl was supposed to not survive last May. And mm. I just did a My Little Pony celebration birthday for her last week for her fourth birthday. So thank you for coming to my fourth TED Talk. Sophia Bush's uh <laughs> It's cool. Podcast. The fourth one's the one that made me cry. Thanks for not calling me out there because you can see me. The listeners uh, yeah, at yeah, home yeah, wouldn't yeah. have known, but I'm just I like didn't call you out. I got your weeping, back. Weeping, wiping my eyes, and you just were like, all right, cool, cool. And I'm just like... <laughs> Sophie's like, keep it, keep it together. I'm like, keep be together. professional. There's something so cool that you said, too. I, I read an interview where you were talking about the experience and... You know, I think so many people, when they go through something like that, have their face tested and, and, and you talked about how it was all of it, you know, and, and you said, was it God at work? Sure. It was also human kindness at work. It was decency at work. It was medicine at work. And, and I, I was so struck by that, the choice to acknowledge that all of those things have to be present for a miracle to happen. That's right. And as we kind of relate your personal experience now to this wider pandemic, my my hope is that we can all remember that all of those things need to be attended to. You know, we have to have belief, but we have to prioritize kindness and decency. We have to trust science. We have to trust medicine. Healthcare. Um, I mean, she yeah. would not have been alive if we did not have healthcare through my wife and her job at Georgetown. I don't have healthcare. I have healthcare through my wife. Um, I'm not part of a union, right? I'm, I've always mm-hmm. been kind of independent. And so I always 
and that and this is why awareness is important, not just for liver donors, not just for cancer, not just uh, so you know people get a good feel good story. It's also to advocate for affordable healthcare, yeah. uh, affordable medicine. Because what happens if we didn't have a healthcare? What happens if we couldn't afford the medicine? What happens if we weren't lucky enough to have friends, and we're like upper middle class, I, th- I would say, um, to raise funds for us? Because even I needed funds because our life got disrupted for like eight months. We couldn't do anything. So you're not yeah. working. You're at home. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take care of my son who's going to school, who's such a sweet boy, and he has to, you know, tolerate this, this disruption. So imagine those single parent families. Because mm. uh, once cancer hits, it's like a, a bomb. It, it hits... The, 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 the person who's experiencing it, but then it, it expands outward mm. and it, it takes over the family and the parents and the loved ones, right? And so I want to bring awareness to the fact that there's so many families who aren't lucky to have friends to, who, who will do GoFundMe. I need a GoFundMe. I'll be honest. We need a GoFundMe to survive. And what happens to those fellow Americans? They die, Sophia. They die. What happens to young millennials in their 20s who have diabetes, who have to ration their insulin because they can't afford it, they die. They die. And so an mm. example of a miracle is healthcare, medicine, mm. kindness, funds, and belief. And I think that's why it's yeah. very important. Because otherwise people say it's a miracle. Oh, God shined his grace upon us. And mm. there was doctors and medicine. Yeah. And a society yeah. that cared about its people. We, we have to expand the yeah. view. Yeah. And yeah, so like, especially, so and, and the reason why it's important is look at coronavirus, look at COVID. It, COVID is a brilliant x-ray of America, of our glories, our warts, our sins, our diseases, because mm-hmm. it's affecting poor people, the elders, black and brown marginalized communities. People are literally dying because they have been neglected, because they live in the wrong zip codes, because they don't have access to healthcare, because uh, they were not valued they were not, as you said, prioritized. And so what type of a nation are we that we're willing to sacrifice our seniors and let them literally just be killed in swaths at a senior center, center home or our children? And, I mean, I think it's like, this is the reckoning. This is the reckoning of America, right? Like, hmm. is this a society we want for our kids? Hey, if you work, you're lucky if you get healthcare. If you get laid off, you'll be like 5 million Americans. That's the, the tally right now. We have lost healthcare because they've lost work. So your health and your, your, your life is only valued by your productivity based on how much you work. Mm. That's the type of society that we are. And I feel like the reason I get more passionate about this is because we just endured it and survived it. And we are the beneficiaries of so much privilege. Mm-hmm. And my wife is a doctor who like rails about this for years. What we're trying to do is we're trying to use Nuseba's story, not just as a navel gazing feel good story, but there's power in a story. And mm-hmm. if people can see how literally this girl's life was saved, maybe they'll be like, oh, let me invest in science and being a liver donor and healthcare during a pandemic. So that's something I want to touch on because I would say there's two courses of action here, which are everyone listening can call their representatives and say that their number one priority is healthcare for Americans, which right. is important. I mean, healthcare, voting rights, there's there's a handful of number one priorities, but these are really up there. Um, also, in the personal action item space, becoming 
a liver donor, you, you can donate blood, you can donate plasma, you can go all the way and become a liver donor. There's many things that you can do that help save a life. You can register in, with the bone marrow registry. There, there's so many options. That's right. That's right. Can you bone walk marrow, people especially. through what some of those are? So, you know, while we were enduring um, her cancer, uh, she needed uh, plasma, right? She needed blood. There's a, a plasma shortage. There's a blood shortage. And so if you can give plasma, if you can give blood, and Sean Zahir, the donor, you know, he, 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 he donated uh, marrow. It's, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a process, but it, it saves lives. So the simplest fact is like, if you just want to give blood, blood saves life. If you can give marrow, marrow saves lives. If you can call uh, your local hospital, the local transplant center, or, or the National Registry and be like, I want to sign up to be a liver donor or a kidney donor. Uh, they'll match you up. And based on Nuseba's story, Georgetown, the transplant center, Dr. Fishbein, who's been doing this for 40 years, said it's the first time we've seen demand, excuse me, we've the first time we've seen supply outmatch demand. Hmm. Oh my God, if 500 people are willing to step up, that's 500 livers. That means we won't ever have to worry about shortage. That means we can expand that means we can save more lives. So inspired by Nuseba, George, Georgetown is now trying to invest and create the Georgetown Living Donor Center to expand their facilities, to bring in more donors, which will save more lives. So you can mm-hmm. also never underestimate the power of funding, never underestimate the power of advocacy for science and healthcare during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Vote. And this is how you can like reward and punish those representatives who actually care about this. You vote these mother effers out who have killed people during a pandemic, who have mm-hmm. politicized masks, who have sucked up to Trump and kissed up to Trump at the expense of the safety and security of their own citizens. I'm talking about the governors of Texas, the governors of Florida, the governor of Arizona, just for mm-hmm. example. These mm-hmm. are the things that we can do because oftentimes we feel so overwhelmed. We're like, there's climate change, there's pandemic, there's racial injustice. Who am I? I'm not Sophia Bush. I'm not an actress with a platform. I'm not, I don't have a podcast. I'm not like Waj. I don't, I get to write for New York Times. I'm just like a, a millennial or a, a, or like a house, like a house, like a housewife. Like that's who I am. Or like a, like a, like a stay at home dad. I'm nobody. Disagree. Everyone mm-hmm. can do something at the local level. Mm-hmm. Educate yourself. You can give blood. You can run for like a uh, uh, city council. You can vote. You can raise hell on the internets. There's mm-hmm. always small steps everyone can do. And we need the collective passion and righteous rage of all of us to create this multicultural Avengers to create change. Because I do think we're at a precipice right now. I think we're, to go to your, you mentioned this, you know, why does it take pain for people to do it? It's always been this way. Pain or tragedy illuminates what's been under our nose forever. George Mm -hmm. Floyd. It's been happening since forever. But Mm -hmm. seeing a man getting choked to death for eight minutes did something to people, right? An unarmored man getting choked to death. That's what finally was the tipping point. Um, For, you know, it's not like women haven't been raped or harassed since forever, but finally seeing so many women come out, Harvey Weinstein, Fox News, something like you read those texts, you hear those stories, he goes, that's freaking disgusting. And And so I think COVID, what it does, coronavirus and Trump and his racism in the, in the recession, it's, people are experiencing immense pain. And I said this before I got in trouble for it. I said, only when 
some of Trump's supporters experience immense personal pain? I've been asked this question for four years. I give the same answer. What will make some people dump Trump? The cult, right? I said, only after they experience immense personal pain will some people say, you know what? This is wrong. And you're seeing it now. People are like, yo, my family member's dying because of COVID. F you, Trump. Wear a freaking mask. Yo, you were supposed to make us great again and you didn't drain the swamp. All your buddies are getting money and the factories are shutting down. F you, Trump. Yo, Mm -hmm. I I liked you for being politically incorrect, but you're just cruel, man. F you, Trump. And does it have to take, does it have to take immense pain for us to do the right thing? I would say no. I would say no. So I hope this is a moment of not only reckoning, but of awareness, growth. Mm. And I hope, you know, my, look, I get no joy in seeing the Rust Belt or Trump supporters dying. I don't want no. you to suffer. I want you to get healthcare. I want you to have food stamps. Yeah. I want you to have economic opportunities. I do not need you to suffer in order to feel great again, even though you need me and my people to suffer to feel great again. I don't need yeah. you to feel, I don't need you to suffer. I want you to be great. I want you to live. I just want you to want that for me and my family as well. Mm-hmm. And if it's going to take you a while to get there, I certainly hope you can speed up that process. But yeah, I will still continue to want you to live while you're catching up. Yeah, I want you to thrive and live. I don't want your kids to suffer. Like, you know, uh, you yeah. know like you speaking about religion, I don't, people hate religion. I understand why. But the through line of most religion is the following. Do the most amount of good, do the least amount of harm. Sanctify yes. life. Simple. You don't have to be a theologian. That's what it is, right? Faith gives you an anchor uh, of security where you feel that there is a powerful force out there, something bigger than you that comforts you and welcomes you and loves you. And also at the same time, your duty and role as a practitioner of that faith is to be the best person you can be and to help people. Simple. Most religions, right? Mm -hmm. And so I hit hard on Twitter. I hit hard on CNN. I hit hard on New York Times. Uh, I'll take on bullies. Uh, but I still want people to succeed. I don't want you to, I don't need, I don't want to replace you. I just want to be equal with you. And (laughs) I want you and your kids to have healthcare in Arkansas. I want Mitch McConnell's voters in Kentucky, which is a state that is just, just ravaged by poverty. Uh, I want you to have access to fresh food and medicine and affordable healthcare and good speed internet. And, 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 and opportunities so you don't feel like you're left out. That's yeah. what I want for you. Me too. You know? I want, I want those regions and all those people, I want them to prosper. I want them to feel secure. Yeah. And, and, and because, again, going back to the point you made, if you are prospering, I am prospering. The thing what people are realizing in COVID, and I think this is really hitting hard, is how connected we all were how connected mm. we all are, right? We try to isolate ourselves in suburbs, uh, in certain zip codes. Uh, we try to isolate ourselves with the internet. We think, oh, uh, what happens in uh, Florida won't affect us. Oh, what happens with those bougie liberals in New York won't affect us. Who cares? Well, now you're seeing it through coronavirus. Mm. And if this country is suffering and if people don't have jobs and if people um, have income inequality, excuse me, if, if there is income inequality, which it is, and it's increasing. And if people uh, are, are sick, all of this affects us, right? It affects yeah. the, it's a burden on the entire country. But if more people have opportunities, we all rise. And that's the one positive. I remember I was talking to a, 
this, you know, my wife and I, our one splurge during the cancer was we used to go get massages just to survive professional massages. And so the lady there, Chinese immigrant who said, I was conservative. I see you on TV. I follow you. She talks politics with me all the time. She's like become woke again, like a 55 year old Chinese immigrant woman. And she goes, I, my, my husband and his family were for Trump because they said, Oh, taxes, business, who cares? But I said, no, he is terrible for this country. He's cruel mm. and he's mean. And it's not like China. It's America. It's all of us or none of us. And he's mm. hurting so many people. We all have to rise up. And so you better not vote for Trump. And she says, every time I come on, you come on scene, I said, watch this man. And so she said, she was so happy. She said right before the lockdown, she goes, I've convinced my husband to vote for the Democrat. Um, and so it just shows you that there is an arc for people. Like, I think there is a way out. And I think people are, unfortunately, are seeing this as a result of this immense collective pain we're enduring during coronavirus. We ha- that's, it's either all of us or none of us, man. That's it. I hate that it takes pain to get there. But what I do love is that we always have the ability to be shaken back to reality. Yeah, humbled. All right, my friend. Thank you for being so generous with your time today. I have one more question for you. It's my favorite thing to ask everyone who comes on the show. And, and you know the podcast is called Work in Progress. And as, as, you're, as you're dovetailing us into this immense... I'm just, I'm, I'm just going uniting, to... No, I was just well, saying, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just... No. Just for those who are listening, I've, <laughs> I've left my minivan to go inside my home just to plug my computer in because I'm at 2% and you're <laughs> listening to me like do this and my kids thought it'd be hilarious so they've locked me out and put the chain. <laughs> no, no, they put the chain. You can see it. So if you can see it, they, th- they do this as a joke. My son Ibrahim does it as a joke. So he's chained me out and oh now I have God. 2% to casually chain myself de-chain myself, get to the, the, the power and get port. Get to the charger. Yeah, yeah, and get to the But keep going, keep going. We're okay. going to make this happen. <laughs> okay. Well, the show's called Work in Progress, and I'm, I'm just curious what to you, whether it's personal, professional, or, or perhaps in this great spirit of, you know, uniting one for all, what feels like a work in progress to you right now? That's a good question. All right, the door is open for those of you who have been following me on this journey. Uh, <laughs> uh, and now I'm trying to go to the, uh, so this is the work in progress to get, first and foremost, the short-term progress is to get to the uh, electricity so I can plug it in. But the work in progress for me, and this is a good question. It's actually a really good question. See, these are those questions that people, I think if they invest a little bit of time in, they can reveal a lot about your personal journey. I think, you know, mm-hmm. if you really invest time, if you don't treat this as a throwaway question, which I'm not treating that, I think the work in progress is continual. I, I, I'm going to make an assumption about you to tell me if I'm wrong. I think you and me are both very hard on ourselves. Mm-hmm. I, think, mm-hmm. I think you and me are people, when people look at us, they think, oh, they've accomplished everything. But I feel like we, we, we sit there and are, and are like, what have, what have I done? Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, this is just an assumption. Pardon me if I'm incorrect. Uh, I, my wife says I am, she's never met anyone who is harder on themselves than me. And she says, I, don't, I wish you could see yourself the way we see you. And it's not self-deprecation. I'm not like self-loathing. I'm not like depressed. I just feel I have been given so much. I am the son of immigrants. I'm the only Mm. child. I've survived death a couple of times. I married up. My daughter is alive. I got to make a career in in media, which so many people don't get to make. I have Mm. a platform. I was lucky to go to UC Berkeley, become an English major. I went to law school. I'm still licensed. 
I, I, I'm talking to Sophia Bush. Uh, I, I've been on CNN. I have, I have access to the editors. I've traveled the world. I do not have the excuse others might have, the legitimate excuse, right? I have been given almost a golden platter in life. I, I won the Willy Wonka ticket. Hmm. And so I believe in God. I believe there will be a judgment day. I believe God will say, so what did you do? You know, with great power comes great responsibility. Other people were poor and other people were sick. I'm not going to ask from them as much because they had such, so many hardships. You know, their struggle was just to survive. What did you do with Jihad? And I ask myself this a lot every day. And my work in progress is twofold. It's going to seem interesting. Number one, to be more forgiving of myself, towards myself, to be gentler. If, which is weird, which is a weird plot twist uh, because we're all trying to endure an international pandemic, something we haven't seen for a hundred years. And resistance in the age of Trump for many people of color is simply survival, mm. simply holding your head up, simply having dignity, simply having joy, finding joy in these moments of pain. And so that's a work in progress is to be a little bit gentler with myself, slow down, live in the moment and realize my wife and I said this to ourselves, this is the high watermark of our life. It's like that scene in Benjamin Button, right when you get to the middle, my parents are alive, her parents are alive, our kids are cute as hell. She's 41, I'm 39. You know, we like, you know, when you crest, you realize it, like, don't take this for granted. Mm. Don't take this for granted. Even during a pandemic, Live in this and just take joy in this. And the other work in progress I would say on the flip side is life is short. I have been given multiple chances. Uh, I, I gave you one example of the near-death experience. I feel like God or the universe gave me a plus one, a bonus life. I'm on bonus time. I have to do whatever I can with whatever limited talent I have to push this forward. Mm. Um, as a father... And I'll give this last analogy. I, I think about myself now. I'm 39. I'm about to turn 40. I got three kids. You know, you always think in my 20s, it was all about my career. Like, I'll be successful with how many books I publish. I'm a father now. And it's different. It's like, maybe I won't be the hero of the story. Maybe I'll be the janitor. Maybe my job is to clean everything up. Mm. Or, or maybe I'll be Hodor of, from Game of the Thrones. You know, maybe I won't like, yeah. Uh, be Jon Snow, but maybe my job is just to hold the door long enough for my kids to escape mm. before the demons break through. And then I say, maybe the work in progress is to be, if I'm lucky, the gardener. Maybe I can just, maybe I can just invest something. And if I'm lucky mm. before my time's up, my kid in that generation can, you know, enjoy the shade and the fruit. So the work in the progress is I'm trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life to make sure that I'm a gardener. Hmm. Yeah. A question I gave you a really pretentious in-depth answer, but that's what I think. I think about this stuff. So there you go. That's where I'm at. I really love that. I, I like the idea of being a gardener and it's interesting you say that because I, my, my, my quarantine project has been to quite literally plant a garden. 
Oh, there you and go. Get chickens. I'm growing things and raising cute baby animals and 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 yeah, really growing and cultivating a space. So yeah, it's pretty. Life. It's no, pretty but it's cool. life, right? And not only, not only not only are you growing chickens, literally life, uh, in a garden, but if you think about it, you are creating. Right, you're a storyteller. You're creating podcasts. You're creating a space. You're creating conversations, and I think people kind of mm-hmm. people people don't take this. You know, we, we it's very easy to be pretentious about this, and it's very easy to also to uh, underestimate the power. Uh, creation comes in different ways. One way is babies. One way is like food. One way is chickens. But also, dialogue and spaces and opportunities is a creation that can really change people's lives, you know, mm-hmm. and I feel like, you know, all of us, I hope, I just hope this can be gardeners. That's my hope. I hope I'm not destructive. I hope I'm just a gardener. I hope, but when my time is up, the work in progress is I can look back and it says I did more good. You know, I pushed things a bit forward. Um, and, and, you know, I don't have any delusions of grandeur. Uh, and then they were with just insignificant specks of stardust. Right. But, uh, I feel like if we can do this, especially during this pandemic, which is, has claimed 140,000 Americans as of now, yeah. which is going to claim more, I feel like I can, when my time is up, I can hang my hat on the rack and feel like I can make my exit. I love that. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's all I got. It's not bad. And it makes me happy to hear the kids having a ball in the background. Oh, it's, you heard that? I'm like, sorry. I no, tried. I love it. I actually really love it. It's it's such a special thing, I think. You know, obviously I've I've followed your journey with what your family's gone through with your daughter, but to hear the kids now playing in the background is like it's like a really beautiful knife to the heart. You know, I'm just like, Oh God, that hits me right in the feels in the best way possible. Yeah. That little, that I, little chirping, that chirping is Nuseba that you can mm-hmm. hear. And that, and that kiss I blew to the <laughs> camera, which thank God you didn't call me on was not me being like totally shady. It was because she came, she came in, she came in the room and I gave her a little kiss and then she gave me a kiss. She goes, okay, okay. She understands now. I'm, I'm Baba. When she, so Baba has a headphone, head, headset that she gets, she goes, okay, okay. And she closed the door and she went away and started beating up her brother. So that's what's happening right now. Amazing. Well, I'm just so happy that there's, you know, so much joy and so much hope in the midst of everything. It's it's inspiring and um and I agree with you. I I hope we can just push things forward a bit. You know, we're trying. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. <laughs>